Hello, pod people. Welcome to Real Lit. Books, booze, and B-movies with your favorite tipsy cuties. show where a English professor and a resident cinephile that you know and love on, here on Allentown Presents Network talk to you about classic literature and uh, overlooked and some might say not as classic <laughs> movies while they are intoxicated most of the time. My name's Sam. And I'm Katie. We are here today to bring you some fire discussions uh my book today is a absolute u.s classic and uh i wanted to bring something that was a little more of a modern classic i would say probably outside of speak the uh most recent that i've covered so far we've gone from literally the first recorded story ever to, you know, quite recent things on this podcast. So the, the literature, the literary whiplash, if you will, is real. Today, we're covering Sandra Cisneros's The House on Mango Street. Fun title. Isn't it? Uh, isn't it just the fact that I can't believe you've never heard of this. I'm so excited. It's, well, it's uh, a newer book. So unless it was written for 12 year olds, specifically by like three artists, three authors that I follow. Yeah, I haven't heard of it. (laughs) For sure. The House on Mango Street, 1984 is when this book came out. So yeah, um, outside of speak, it is the one of the most recent that I've covered. Um, But it is 100% without a doubt, uh, an American classic. And uh, it was written by the Mexican-American author Sandra Cisneros. It's considered a modern classic of uh, Chicano literature in particular. Um, It's been, you know, the subject of numerous academic publications and academic, you know, seminars and, uh, you know, study in Chicano studies and feminist theories in particular. Uh, We'll get into why that is when we, you know, talk about it more. So the way the House on Mango Street is written is going to change a little bit um, the usual way that I go about my portion of this show. Um, Usually I would be giving you a synopsis uh, of the story kind of from beginning to end. That's not going to entirely work in this way because the the way that this is structured is essentially um, in vignettes. So kind of short little stories that are in and of themselves sort of um, insular and their own sort of mini stories, but they're all set within the same universe, so to speak, kind of like the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Um, but very even smaller in scope than that. Like when I say vignettes, vignettes are in particular short. Um, It is very short little stories that are isolated in the fact that they are their own tiny stories but they are part of a you know a compilation that Cisneros has put together because they are all within the same uh world fictional world that she has created so it is um composed of 44 vignettes um they are they kind of range in length like I said but they are all quite short um for the most part even the longest ones um 
the, you know, the longest one is several pages, maybe. Uh, and the shortest ones can be even one or two paragraphs, just kind of for understanding there. And the protagonist of the story, we know this because she is the narrator. She is the first person narrator um, that is writing all of these little vignettes that we're reading. Her name is Esperanza. Essentially, the way to kind of think about this is, first of all, um, the way Cisneros kind of approached writing this is like, she wanted to create a text basically that was sort of short and compact and sort of flexible, uh, very much like poetry because Cisneros is um, a poet as well. Um, and she wanted to create one that was, had a lot of little smaller images slash scenes that were really sort of um, like Tetris, you can kind of think of in a sense of like, they're their little individual pieces and the way you fit them together, it, is, it kind of changes the creation. But you can look at each individual piece and you don't necessarily have to be lost when you look at either of them. That's kind of what she wanted. She wanted ones that you essentially, this is not a direct quote, but it's almost a direct quote. She wanted something that you could open it up to any page and you could read one of the vignettes and you would know what is happening and you could know the story and not necessarily have to know anything else that was going on to feel okay, to like feel like, oh, I just read something really interesting and really good. And I don't feel necessarily like I have to know more or less. She is quoted saying, I wanted something that was accessible to someone who comes home with their feet hurting. So that sort of feel of like, I just kind of want something that I can escape into, whether or not I want to escape into it for hours or I want to escape into it for a couple minutes. Uh, she wanted it to serve that purpose. She wrote in 2009 um, an introduction to her novel. Um, and in this introduction, she actually goes into a lot of details um, about the process of writing her book. So specifically, she came up with the title, The House on Mango Street, because she was kind of writing these little stories, essentially, and they all sort of focused around the character, you know, who is Esperanza, that lived at this house. And so it was essentially kind of like the focal point, basically, of the world that these characters lived in she refers to the novel essentially as a quote-unquote jar of buttons kind of this idea of you put them in a jar and they're very beautiful to look at and they themselves make kind of a singular sort of piece but you can look at each little button in it and see the different crazy interesting colors and you know patterns and designs and things like that they were written over um a bunch of different periods of time so the first three of her stories were written in Iowa. They were written as a side project um, as she was um, studying her MFA, actually. She kind of continued on in her life and filled in some more stories in later on, in particular, almost um, taking some of her own experiences. She has mentioned that uh, she definitely pulls from her own kind of life and experiences in um, stories in the house on mango street um and the people that she would write about would be people that she would kind of you know they wouldn't be one singular person that she knows was one singular character she was um kind of taking the care the people that she knew and kind of creating 
sort of amalgamations of the people that she had kind of met over the years. And then she would kind of fit those characters into the events slash stories that she had already created, just put it all together basically. And it was um, pretty, pretty impactful as you can tell. So this is as close to a synopsis as we're gonna get, <laughs> okay? This story, The House on Mango Street covers a year in the life of a girl named Esperanza Cordero. She is a young Chicana girl. She lives in um, a poorer Chicago neighborhood and uh, she lives with her parents and she has three siblings. The book opens with Esperanza explaining um, essentially how she and her family have come to Mango Street um, that story is basically that before they settled here in the house on Mango Street, which is a small sort of rundown building that is built of kind of crumbling red bricks. Um, before she moved here, they had moved around very frequently in the area and had been wandering sort of place to place. Um, but they had always talked in their little family and dreamed essentially of, um, you know, having a house of their own as they were moving around kind of being nomadic of the, you know, building up this sort of like promised land of when we get this house of our own, it's gonna be this, it's gonna be that, it's gonna be perfect. Um, and so this is their first house that is their own when they finally land the house on Mango Street. When they get there, you know, it is not, not exactly the house of their dreams or Esperanza's dreams, certainly, right? Um, basically the parents are like, okay, well, this is not, you know, the very, very end goal. You know, this is just our first house. So it's not the actual, you know, promised land of our, our perfect house, right? We'll definitely keep moving, but this is, this is, um, you know, the first sort of more stable stop on our way to our promised land of a house, right? Uh, it is definitely an improvement, right, from their previous sort of places that they've had to dwell and live in before. Um, but Esperanza is definitely disappointed. Um, it's not a real house to her, right? Um, it's not one that she's seen on TV, for instance, uh, which is one that she's, you know, drunk about the whites house and picket fences and yards and all of that good stuff. So she really does not enjoy overall just in general life on Mango Street. Um, she feels it is very, you know, insular, very, um, she would describe it as suffocating. Is she a teenager? Person. She's young. She's a young teenager, I believe. Um, Sounds so, right. Yeah. So you could she, have the perfect house. You're still going to act like this. Right. Right. <laughs> for sure. For sure. She, you know, it's just not her, it's not the house of her dreams. It's not what she's built up in her head. So she begins writing poetry to kind of express her feelings. And this is essentially what we get as the kind of origin story for how we're reading this. This is the vignettes that she's writing is she's writing them because she's caught into Mango Street and she is a young new teen now and she's getting her emotions out and writing. Um, so this is kind of the basis and the setup for the story. She's got a very kind of detailed eye, like she's got an eye essentially for the very kind of small and kind of idiosyncratic behaviors and characteristics of her family and her neighbors um, and things like that. So 
her descriptions of these people and the the place that she lives in in this this street where the house on mango street uh lives is uh it creates essentially this this picture um this scene of this uh this setting that uh all of these people are almost trapped in she describes in these stories um her younger sister nenny is one of her closest you know friends i guess spend a lot of time together uh as well as um their friends rachel and lucy these two girls are also sisters like nenny and esperanza are and they're kind of around the same ages so they have the same dynamic in terms of their sisterness and so these four girls are kind of like the the core group for Esperanza and they get, you know, get into fun little mishaps and have fun little adventures. Uh, there's um, in particular one where they kind of waltz around one day, they get um, one of the neighbors uh, throws, um, they want to throw some of their like old shoes away and it's adult shoes, it's grown up shoes, it's high heeled fancy shoes. So these girls um, who are just, you know, preteens at this point almost, uh, are like, ooh, and they walk around the neighborhood in these fancy, you know, hot high heels and uh, kind of enjoy that day. She also, Esperanza, also befriends older people as well, though. So she's very much a kid and she does very much have like young kid um, friends, but she also makes friends with older people as well. And this is essentially where a lot of the sort of the neat of the novel comes in because um, the people that she meets who are older, we get this, this view of them from the lens of child, you know, essentially kind of older child, but still not quite young adults yet, not quite young child anymore, but that weird, awkward preteen becoming a teen area that Esperanza's in. Um, so when you just when she describes the stuff that's going on, you as a reader can make more meaning from it than what she very much understands of what she sees of these characters and so that that sort of poetic and kind of poignant a uh, disconnect almost that Esperanza goes through and kind of learns as she gets older in this year what some of those things mean the the more kind of experiences she has and the more she meets these people kind of learns like sort of the darker aspects of what is behind all of these people's quote unquote quirkiness or unusualness, right? It's, be, well, it's because um, they're of lots of darker things, unfortunately. Um, so one of these older girls is Alicia. She is um, a young college student. Uh, she has a dead mother. Another one of these older girls is Marin. She is a babysitter. She spends her a lot of her time babysitting her younger cousins. The other kind of more important one is Sally, and we'll get more into her later. Basically, covering Sally is in and of itself. We'll we'll cover her later. Uh, but that is kind of the other older girl that Esperanza sort of befriends. And basically, these stories kind of go through. And they um, she focuses really when she writes on these moments of kind of difficulty. So when kind of things that disrupt the pattern of what's going on happen in her neighborhood, that's when she kind of writes about something. So for instance, one of the stories that she writes is like, okay, well, one time my friend Louie was uh, 
you know, we hang out and this is who Louie is. Oh, one time Louie's cousin got arrested because he came by and he came by in this brand new spanking car and it was, you know, cool as fuck basically. And all of us kids were like, damn, take us in a ride, Louie's cousin. And Louie's cousin was like, heck yeah. And we rode around the neighborhood and then a police car tried to pull us over and he kicked us all out of the car and then tried to run away from the cops. And then he, you know, ran the car into a light pole or whatever. And everyone was freaking out thinking, oh my God, he's dead. He didn't die, but he gets arrested because he stole a fucking car basically. Yeah. Um, uh, that is kind of one of the moments. Another moment, um, which is a pretty sad moment is um, Esperanza. She has an aunt, her name is Aunt Lupe and her Aunt Lupe is very sick for um, a particular reason, basically that she doesn't really remember why she kind of talks about in the story. Like, I can't remember what the real reason is why she's dead. Um, if it's, or why she's dead, why she's uh, sick, if it's this or this or this, but her aunt Lupe does die. Actually, the reason I said that is because she makes this story of the title of that story. I can't remember the, the specific thing. I'll find it later when I open this a little later, but she tells this story because she's like, I'm probably going to hell. And the reason I'm going to hell is because I've done something really awful. Uh, you know, my aunt, when my aunt died on the day that, so she tells this story about how she and her friends, her and Nenny and Rachel and Lucy do this quote unquote game where they pretend to be their neighbors. So they like walk around and they, they do caricatures basically of their neighbors as children do. And they're kind of insulting, but it's okay because they're kids. So like, you know, you don't take them very seriously, but then one day they decide to pretend to be Aunt Lupe. So they're, they're pretending to be sick like she is and kind of over-exaggerating it. And they don't learn until that day is over. That's the day that she dies basically. And they were essentially making fun of her all day. So she's like, yeah, I'm going to hell and feels very um, upset about it. Like she is kind of an awful child and that, you know, there's something wrong with her, that she's evil somehow inside. Like I said, the vignettes progress over the course of a year. So as they are progressing, you can see in Esperanza um, that she is kind of growing in maturity. She really is like that cusp of, I am sort of a preteen, I'm becoming a teen. And by the end of it, she is a teen. Um, and it is different for sure. She is developing essentially not just her own sort of worldview, but in particular, especially she's developing her sort of emotional um, and physical understanding of her body and sexuality and kind of what it means to be a girl um, in her time, in her day and age, in her particular surroundings, um, in her culture, like what it means to be a girl um, and how you're sort of treated uh, because of the fact that you are becoming a woman, uh, things like that. Does this take place, like, is this a modern story? Like, I know that it was a modern release, but it, does it take place, like, current times? Or is it, like, it growing up in the 90s? Are we talking, like, mid-century? Like, where is this? So it's definitely not the 90s, but, um, I mean, it comes out in 1984. So you can kind of pretty easily assume that she's growing up maybe in the 60s to 70s. Oh, okay. So okay. she's not, they're, they're not quite in the like Pleasantville era of like the fifties, 
they're not quite really into the 80s yet um but they're kind of right there yeah well I only ask because how kids grow up and how they view everything around them is very dependent on the era that they grew up in yes like I have a very different worldview or had a very different worldview than like the kids I watch who grew up knowing nothing but the internet. Like the internet has always existed for the kids that I watch. And when I was a kid, the internet was not a thing. And it wasn't a thing until I was in high school. Like it didn't matter until I was in high school. So I didn't have to worry about all of these different things. So the way that I looked at things and the way that I looked at the people around me was very different than current kids or even the kids even me I mean for me I you know when you were getting the internet in your high school that was me in middle school so it was like it even just that short amount of a difference between our ages was very different in terms of like paradigm shifts of the internet like that yeah for sure um yeah there's definitely no internet obviously and things like that but it is um it is a very clear era I mean one of the stories Esperanza tells is the one of the times that she got her first job and she's 14 so it's like okay she's 14 now and her family is like it's time for you to get a job to to start bringing money home for the family and everything and so her aunt one of her aunts or cousins or something is like oh I know where you can get a job um it's the same place I work or something like that. Um, when you go in, wear this, tell them that you're a year older than you are um, and they'll hire you basically. So she's tells them that she's 15 and gets a job, even though she's technically 14. Um, yeah. It's just not something that would happen <laughs> in later decades for sure. I mean, it was a pretty common sentiment when I was 14 and 15 for young Latinos and Latinas to have jobs or to be oh, expected yeah. to get a job. There was actually a point when I can remember my dad telling me like about him having a job when he was like 12. Mm -hmm. And when I had turned 14, he was like, okay, it's time for you to go get a job. And by the time that I turned 14, California state law had changed and not, and had made the limit 16. Like you Mm -hmm. had to have, you had to be 16 or it was like 15 with parental consent, but you had to be 16 to basically get hired anywhere. And when I told my dad about it, cause I had like looked into getting a job at 14 and I told my dad about it. He was like, that's fucking stupid. I had a job at 12. Like you'll be fine. (laughs) So just even that little change, like in the, what was that early two thousands? Like, yeah, it is. Um, it's wild. It's wild. It's wild when you think of uh, how it is nowadays. For sure, the the teens of today would be very surprised at just how recently um, and how long it was for a long time that much younger kids, basically as we would call them today, would be having jobs, and that would just be a normal kind of thing that they were expected to do. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it's that kind of era. Okay. For her. 60s, 70s, got it. Something around there. She's yeah, de- for sure. Then she's dealing with a lot. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. The cultural impacts and implications 
that are put on her shoulders in the 60s in Chicago as a Chicano girl in a poor neighborhood in Chicago yeah this is a lot so she is um you know kind of quote unquote I hate this sort of terminology but she is quote unquote blooming right this is the year that she becomes a teen and she's no longer a child you know right blooming yeah so puberty got it yeah and she grew um, boobs this year basically yeah gross kind of um learning about you know what it means to be a girl what it means to be a woman basically uh, not a child who is a girl but who is a uh, someone who you know has boobs and who men look at you and think that you know you're attractive and want to touch you and want to kiss you and um thinking about how she feels about that like how she does or does not want to be touched or be kissed or any of those types of things and um this is kind of where I'll talk a little bit more about Sally and then I'll talk to her about her finally a little later on but um Sally in particular is kind of um one of the large influences here in that regard for Esperanza's sort of story she is um Uh, a very attractive young girl Um, she's older than Esperanza but she's younger than the other older girls that Esperanza befriends Uh, Sally um, is that girl that you think of at school that wears makeup that wears you know clothes that clothes that are provocative quote-unquote and that acts you know in ways that adults would find they would frown upon you know things like that yeah and uh sally her father is a very deeply religious man and he is a very abusive man he is physically abusive just on principle just in terms of beating it's assumed that he beats everyone in the household but we know that he beats sally for sure i would say in the way that Esperanza describes some of the like interactions that go on between Sally and her father that there's potentially even some sexual abuse here just because of the very um sort of toxically almost codependent relationship that they apparently have Sally will run away and stay with other people and then her father will come and like beg for her to come back to the house. Um, it's it's unfortunate. And in my opinion, it's very pointedly put in there by Cisneros, especially yeah. because of, in particular other things that happen in the story that we'll get to. There's to a me, lot of media, um, movies, television, and books that have to do with this exact situation. A girl is being sexually abused by a an adult in her life and in turn turns that into something in her mind flips and she's basically I'm guessing because I haven't read this book but I'm assuming you're you're not guessing wrong for sure (laughs) so There's a thing that flips in a lot of, in these characters' heads, and I'm sure this happens in real life, um, which is why it happens in movies and 
TV and everything else. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a thing that flips with abuse with some people, some victims of abuse where they feel this feeling of like, well, I'm already having sex. Like my, whoever is forcing it on me, I might as well just become a slut. Like, it's all- I can't be well- any more slutty. Like I might as well. So they start dressing provocatively. They start becoming quote unquote loose or slutty. Like they just start perpetuating this idea amongst the uh, the rest of the school that they are whores or whatever, even if they're not. It's right. just, it's something that like, it's a way to kind of balance out the trauma that they're dealing with at home, the abuse trauma. And it's like, if, if I can be abused by these people that are supposed to protect me like who gives a fuck if I get abused by random person from school like it is um definitely that uh I think a lot of it too is that when that happens to you you learn especially no it should never happen to you no matter how young you are but especially the younger you are when it happens you're learning via unfortunate that unfortunate trauma you're learning from that that this is something that is potentially how interactions with the opposite sex or other people in your life are supposed to be. Yeah. Um, and, or this is maybe even a part of just normal adult interactions or normal adult, um, you know, understanding of what your worth is. Um, as a person, depending on what your gender is. So you, you look either consciously or unconsciously. I think some people do it for sure, thinking this and kind of wanting to figure it out on, on a conscious level, but even unconsciously, I think that is the tendency. Even if you're not thinking of doing it, you're doing it because you're looking to see how that fits in with the other types of relationships that you have in your life, whether what you've learned basically here from this experience translates here in this situation, translates here with this type of person with when you feel this way and you, you unfortunately are learning because of that trauma. Oh, if I'm in a situation like this, this is what I'm supposed to do. And yeah, Unfortunately, because it's abuse and it's not something that they're supposed to have gone through, you know, depending on their age, then it becomes this idea of, oh shit, she's a slut or he's a slut or, you know, yeah. man or whatever, because, because you're sexualizing something that would normally probably not be super sexual. I'm not saying yeah. that it would ever get sexual. Interaction. Yeah, over sexualizing a normal interaction. Exactly. And you're doing that because that's what you've learned. And it's not because you're a whore, you're a, you know, you're sex crazy. It's because that is what you have been opened to and what you have been exposed to. And when you, when it's just, it's a human thing. It's not even just a kid thing. It's a human thing. When you're exposed to new things and those things are very significant very um, impactful um, to you as an experience, you try and translate that and figure out where that sort of experience and those emotions live in your day-to-day life and where it's applicable and where it's not applicable. And that's how it happens, just in my opinion. Um, These stories always make me really upset 
not just like okay clearly the abuse sexual abuse of children is just abhorrent and fucking horrible and that is fucking burn the earth level anger anyways yeah but the way that a lot of media deals with these stories bugs me yeah because the solution more often than not in popular entertainment is this idea of a savior Mm -hmm. male typically male because this is usually a story that happens to females yeah not saying it doesn't happen to men because it does but more often than not when we see it it's this girl was abused then she became a slut and then surprise surprise she gets a savior boyfriend Mm -hmm. who is this perfect guy who gonna treat her differently correctly right and teach Mm -hmm. her how to love and teach her to love herself and all these things and while that is one resolution i guess for sure kind of emotional trauma yeah i hate that it has become the trope Mm -hmm. it's like that's like the only ending that hollywood or books says is valid right yeah says is the thing that works which yeah and it's just like no like she could grow up and go to therapy yeah like she could grow up and not be into men yeah yeah (laughs) there's there's all sorts of different things but the the it bugs me that this specific story type archetype always ends with like a savior yeah relationship so it unfortunately i'll just kind of preface this here it doesn't end in that regard because it ends worse it ends in the worst case scenario oh well i guess not the worst case scenario the second worst case scenario so for Sally, it ends up being just kind of spoil her ending here. We're going to go back and talk a little bit about other stuff that happens with her. But just for reference, what happens with Sally is eventually she marries a guy at like 15 or something like that, mm-hmm. 15 or 16, maybe. Yeah, maybe. that's very common in, in and, Hispanic culture. And the guy is, uh, is her dad, 2.0 is treats her exactly the same way as he treat as her dad treated her basically but that's what she knows and that's what she's learned is what she's for basically Mm -hmm. yeah so that's what she's fallen into when this is definitely I guess that's definitely second worst case scenario because my mind immediately went to she commits suicide (laughs) okay well then I guess third because the first case yeah you're correct she commits suicide. Worst case scenario. Second worst case scenario. What I was thinking of was she just stays with her dad forever. Was what I was. Or he thinking. kills her. Like right, exactly. Yeah. There's some sort of it never ends between her and her dad. Yeah, yeah. some lovely bones situation is what I was picturing. <laughs> uh, uh. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So side side note. Pause. <laughs> the robot. The side, uh, the side uh, trail here for just a second. The Lovely Bones. So when the movie was coming out, I was like, oh, I want to see the movie. So I read the book before the movie came out because I was excited to see the book or see the movie. And I am a person who likes to read the book usually before I see the movie. It was okay. <laughs> the book was okay? Yeah, it was not. It was not the worst book I've ever read. Yeah, for sure. That was not the worst. Yeah. It was not spectacular by any stretch of the imagination. So I didn't, 
I didn't read the book. I saw the movie and I don't know how it can be like, you'll be able to kind of talk about how it compares after seeing the movie. I didn't understand why everyone loved the book so much. I was like, this is a shit show. It's horribly sad. There's never like a happy anything to this book. Like it's just depressing, sad, molested, rape, molestation, and murder. Like (laughs) the book is the same. You just get more information about all the time that's passing. Cool. So (laughs) worse. So the book is horrible and everyone who liked it, I don't understand you. There's There's nothing like, and I- I feel bad every time I talk about books like this, even even as, as many times as I've done it on this show. Because sure, absolutely, it is an important story to tell that kids get abused and raped and murdered. Absolutely, that is the thing that happens and dark fiction exists for a reason. This book in particular, and it falls in this kind of, sort of category slash line slash area that I'll talk about in a second of a different book as well that also bugged me in the same way but it falls in this area of what I call the romanticizing books where it almost borderline romanticizes the sexual trauma the girl has gone through yeah it's really gross to me because she's a child she's not, I don't care how much of a preteen she is, or maybe she was a child and she's raped by an adult man who then murders her in the lovely bones, just mm-hmm. spoiler alert. Right. And the whole thing is she's a ghost in heaven trying to help her family and her friends and whatnot. Yeah. And like part, solve her murder case. Yeah. Solve her murder basically. And there's a part in it where she possesses one of the girls that was kind of her friend not even really she didn't really know the girl before when she was alive she possesses this girl so that she can fuck her old boyfriend she does it because she had never had sex before she got raped and it's this moment that is I can tell when you're reading it and I can tell when people talk about it and talk about how they like it that it's supposed to be this profound oh so invigorating and fulfilling and uh you know like it it gives her the the experience that she never had but also morality questions did the girl she possessed want to have sex was she already was she a virgin was she already promiscuous does it fucking matter because you're a ghost and you don't get to make those decisions for a person does the the guy's fucking a woman and he know by the way he knows when he's fucking her that she's possessed essentially he doesn't know it like 100% but he guesses basically at least in the narrative of the book he he figures out basically that he's essentially fucking his dead girlfriend not the girl whose body he is fucking and he yeah, does that's, it anyway that's rape there's so much wrong with it <laughs> jesus so christ wrong with it and if bothers me because no, it I know. falls in this in this area of books that kind of do that that kind yeah. of they talk about the rape of children in particular girl children um just fyi for the genre that i'm talking about and they do it in this way that they're 
they're trying to explore the nuances of the the feelings that it makes these children feel and I get that I super get that and if you are unfortunately anyone who's ever actually in real life gone through a trauma like this yourself then you cannot listen to this part because I'm telling you that this doesn't apply to you you can write whatever kind of fiction you want about your trauma all of that is valid for sure but it does super bother me if you are someone who has not actually experienced this trauma, if you are writing a book, not just about this, because that's totally fine. You can write about whatever you want. But if you're writing about it in this way that is romanticizing the rape and the yeah. abuse, that bothers me because we don't need to be doing that. We, I don't need to fucking hear about how the you know, 12 year old girl who, or however old she was, I've read this other book called The Child Finder, just spoiler alert. If you're someone who is on my wavelength here and you're listening to this, don't read it because it is exactly this type of book that I'm talking about. It bothered the fuck out of me the entire time I was reading it and I did not enjoy it. And I did not yeah. <laughs> recommend it after I read it. And I did not pick up any of the other sequels or whatever it is that I think there's a sequel that comes after it. And I was not interested because like one of the big story aspects of it is this girl who is a child. She's like 12. I'm pretty sure she's very young, not even preteen era, like 12 or something like that. And she gets raped and abused basically by this guy who like, he saves her life in the woods or something like that. She like got lost in the woods and she's going to die of hypothermia. And there's this mountain woods man who saves her, but he is a man and he is living by himself in the woods. And after he saves her, he keeps her as a prisoner, basically. And eventually he rapes her. And it like tells this story of the girl- Suit of Stockholm Syndrome? It's 1000% Stockholm Syndrome. Yeah. 1000%. And I get that. And that's a valid story to tell but I don't need to fucking read about it from a 12 year old's point of view. And I don't need to read about the 12 year old thinking to herself, I'm a woman now. And, and this was my decision. And this is something that I wanted. It's like, you're 12. You didn't. I, sorry. I just, I, it's just territory that I'm not comfortable going into. And I yeah. really hate that genre of fiction. So just spoiler alert, it's not something that if I ever cover it, it's going to only be because I cover it so that I can tell you that this is a classic piece of literature that is this genre of story. And if you're someone like me who that really bothers you, don't fucking read it because- it, No, it's we're, we're not covering Lovely Bones. I refuse because I <laughs> refuse to watch that movie again. So like I said, I didn't watch, I didn't read that book because I hardly read. Um, and everyone I knew who did read had read the book and was like, oh, it's such a great, it's such a good book. It's, you know, it's going to be such a good movie. I can't wait to see what they do with it. And I was like, okay, cool. Like they, they all got me hyped for the movie. And then I went and saw the fucking movie and I was, it was just two hours of me being fucking mad that Stanley Tucci was a rapist. And mm-hmm. I was like, how yes! dare you do that to my boy, Stanley Tucci? And Stanley Tucci does a great job in that movie. Don't get me wrong. I mean, he's great in everything he does, but he's Stanley he's Tucci. In that movie. If you told Stanley Tucci, to badly. you are going to go on stage right now and act like a brown paper bag full of vegetables. He would act the fuck out of it. 
Absolutely. And you would legitimately believe that Stanley Tucci was a brown paper bag full of vegetables. Okay. (laughs) This is how talented Stanley Tucci is. Okay. And it's wasted in that movie for sure. And they turned him into a balding rapist murderer. It's so bad. (laughs) Yes. I came out of that movie so fucking heated. I was so mad that they did that to Stanley Tucci. I went and watched it with my mom, just FYI. Oh, and God. At point, and at this point, I had read the book, right? So at this point, I was holding out hope. I was like, maybe this is one of those instances where the people who adapt it from the book make it better in the movie. They make it, they, they do something, they make it more exciting. They, they change they the change story the a little bit. Somehow. The people who, the, the people who fucking flip the scripts on my sister's keeper, for instance, like they, they pull up my sister's keepers movie thing on it and they fucking change the ending and everything gets great at the end. Like, that's what I was hoping for. I was like, cause otherwise this is just a waste of my time, but I yeah. go with my mom and my mom, you can tell as we're watching it too, that my mom is literally on my safe way. Like, and we walked out of that movie and I'm almost like, that was a very interesting movie. It's <laughs> like, I'm so sorry. I just imagine your mom coming out of that theater, the <laughs> pure good Christian woman that she is, and just being like, that movie fucking sucked. <laughs> is she, is she, that, she said it in the most polite way that she could because we were in public. Yeah. But she 1000% said in her polite Christian way in public voice, this movie was not good, Samantha. <laughs> just yeah, like, that sounds right. I can I, I can hear know, it. In I don't her know voice what we brain. were expecting, but it was not this. I definitely wasn't expecting it, and I'm not happy. And I was like, I'm so sorry, mom. I'm not happy either. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh God. Anyway, long tangent, but it came because of the fact that unfortunately, in the house on Mango Street, Sally is one of these unfortunate young girls who. Um, this happens to and it's not just a young girl in literature I know I was making a big thing about this being a genre it's a genre for based on reality for a very good reason because it is it's a real thing that happens and I'm not saying that it is not a valid genre who knows maybe I just haven't read some of the ones that actually do it in a way that really do do it justice and do explore it and explore the nuances of the emotion without crossing that boundary for me um maybe I just haven't read them and I'm always more than willing to read them if you have suggestions hey hit us up on Tweeted us uh, at Alan Campon. um truly because I, I I'm open to that and I would never say any in any way shape or form that people writing stuff like that should be censored in any way or they shouldn't be writing it um or it should be banned or it should be burned or whatever um not what I'm saying it's just not my cup of tea and I just don't feel like it's cool it skews me out that being said this was kind of Sally's reality in this story and Esperanza becoming her friend sort of sees this happening and is very much this is kind of the linchpin where Esperanza as our main character sort of realizes oh this is this is the the hinge upon which all of the other girls that are my friends, all of their sort of life choices and stuff and the, the the ways that they end up, all of it is revolving around this aspect, this sort of sexual thing that's going on. And sh- Sally is her, the friend that kind of brings that to the forefront for Esperanza and kind of makes her sort of grapple with it. 
Um, in particular, there's only one kind of part that I want to read. Because they're short vignettes, um, I want to read the entirety of this little vignette. This is the monkey garden. The monkey doesn't live there anymore. The monkey moved to Kentucky and took his people with him. And I was glad because I couldn't listen anymore to his wild screaming at night, the twangy yakety yak of the people who owned him. The green metal cage, the porcelain tabletop, the family that spoke like guitars, monkey, family, table, all gone. And it was then we took over the garden we had been afraid to go into when the monkey screamed and showed its yellow teeth. There were sunflowers big as flowers on Mars and thick coxcomb bleeding the deep red fringe of theater curtains. There were dizzy bees and bow-tied fruit flies turning somersaults and humming in the air. Sweet, sweet peach trees, thorn roses and thistles and pears, weeds like so many squinty-eyed stars and brush that made your ankles itch and itch until you washed with soap and water. There were big green apples hard as knees and everywhere the sleepy smell of rotting wood, damp earth and dusty hollyhocks thick and perfumey like the blue blonde hair of the dead. Yellow spiders ran when we turned rocks over and pale worms blind and afraid of light rolled over in their sleep. Poke a stick in the sandy soil and a few blue skinned beetles would appear, an avenue of ants, so many crusty ladybugs. This was a garden, a wonderful thing to look at in the spring. But bit by bit, after the monkey left, the garden began to take over itself. Flowers stopped obeying the little bricks that kept them from growing beyond their paths. Weeds mixed in. Dead cars appeared overnight like mushrooms. First one and then another, and then a pale blue pickup with the front windshield missing. Before you knew it, the monkey garden became filled with sleepy cars. Things had a way of disappearing in the garden, as if the garden itself ate them, or as if with its old man memory, it put them away and forgot them. Nenny found a dollar and a dead mouse between two rocks in the stone wall where the morning glories climbed. And once when we were playing hide and seek, Eddie Vargas laid his head beneath a hibiscus tree and fell asleep there like a Rip Van Winkle until somebody remembered he was in the game and went back to look for him. This, I suppose, was the reason why we went there. Far away from where our mothers could find us, we and a few old dogs who lived inside the empty cars. We made a clubhouse once on the back of that old blue pickup. And besides, we liked to jump from, roof, from the roof of one car to another and pretend they were giant mushrooms. Somebody started the lie that the monkey garden had been there before anything. We liked to think the garden could hide things for a thousand years. There beneath the roots of soggy flowers were the bones of murdered pirates and dinosaurs, the eye of a unicorn turned to coal. This is where I wanted to die and where I tried one day, but not even the monkey garden would have me. It was the last day I would go there. Who was it that said I was getting too old to play the games? Who was it I didn't listen to? I only remember that when the others ran, I wanted to run too, up and down and through the monkey garden, fast as the boys, not like Sally, who screamed if she got her stockings muddy. I said, Sally, come on, but she wouldn't. She stayed by the curb talking to Tito and his friends. Play with the kids if you want, she said. I'm seeing here. She could be stuck up like that if she wanted to. So I just left. It was her own fault too. When I got back, Sally was pretending to be mad. Something about the boys having stolen her keys. Please give them back to me, she said, punching the nearest one with a soft fist. They were laughing. She was too. It was a joke I didn't get. 
I wanted to go back with the other kids who were still jumping on cars, still chasing each other through the garden. But Sally had her own game. One of the boys invented the rules. One of Tito's friends said, you can't get the keys back until you kiss us. And Sally pretended to be mad at first, but she said, yes, it was that simple. I don't know why, but something inside me wanted to throw a stick. Something wanted to say no when I watched Sally going into the garden with Tito's buddies, all grinning. It was just a kiss, that's all, a kiss for each one. So what, she said. Only how come I felt angry inside? Like something wasn't right. Sally went behind that old blue pickup to kiss the boys and get her keys back. And I ran up three flights of stairs to where Tito lived. His mother was ironing shirts. She was sprinkling water on them from an empty pop bottle and smoking a cigarette. Your son and his friends stole Sally's keys and now they won't give them back unless she kisses them. And right now they're making her kiss them. I said all out of breath from the three flights of stairs. Those kids, she said, not looking up from her ironing. That's all? What do you want me to do, she said. Call the cops? And kept on ironing. I looked at her a long time, but couldn't think of anything to say, and ran back down the three flights of the guard to the garden where Sally needed to be saved. I took three big sticks and a brick and figured this was enough. But when I got there, Sally said, go home. Those boys said, leave us alone. I felt stupid with my brick. They all looked at me as if I was the one that was crazy and made me feel ashamed. And then I don't know why, but I had to run away. I had to hide myself at the other end of the garden in the jungle part under a tree that wouldn't mind if I lay down and cried a long time. I closed my eyes like tight stars so that I wouldn't, but I did. My face felt hot. Everything inside hiccuped. I read somewhere in India, there are priests who can will their heart to stop beating. I wanted to will my blood to stop, my heart to quit its pumping. I wanted to be dead, to turn into the rain. My eyes melt into the ground like two black snails. I wished and wished. I closed my eyes and willed it. But when I got up, my dress was green and I had a headache. I looked at my feet in their white socks and ugly round shoes. They seemed far away. They didn't seem to be my feet anymore. And the garden that had been such a good place to play didn't seem mine either. So this is like a very, very important moment basically for Esperanza because she realizes in this moment, obviously, that it's much more nuanced than what the adults obviously kind of make it out to be for children. And it, it is a very sort of poignant and beautiful way that Cisneros kind of puts here the the disadvantage really that we often put kids at when we sort of keep them from understanding sort of the nuances of you know relationships and romance and things like that and we sort of only treat it always as like something dirty right because yeah. it leads to often uh things like this where it is conflicting for Esperanza, obviously, as a 14-year-old, that she is someone who is now going through puberty and feeling these feelings, but she's always been told, as all kids, especially young girls at her, um, or her day and age, are always told that it's wrong. It's wrong. It's dirty. You should never be doing it, yada, 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 uh, you know, and you don't talk about it, right? It's not something you talk about ever, yeah. but you don't do it. 
that's these are the sort of kind of moments that that leads to and Cisneros sort of very beautifully and starkly brings that um, to the forefront here with just a very simple story of you know Esperanza wanting to save her friend and her friend doesn't need saving right um even though she does in a sense need saving right but she doesn't need saving from Tito and his friend she needs saving from her father she needs saving from you know the sexualization that lots of um older adults in particular male adults put on younger girls in general especially back then right she needs saving from those things she doesn't need saving from Tito and his friends right she's in that situation, not because Tito and his friends are evil, right? They're, they're typical, normal young kids. It's because of the adults and the sort of environment and, and, uh, you know, way that they have treated the subject of sexuality and relationships and romance and all that stuff to their kids. That is what has kind of put all of them in this situation here. After this, unfortunately, she and Sally are still friends for sure, but they do go through a very big rift when Esperanza and Sally go to, they go to a carnival and Sally, of course, ditches Esperanza to um, go hang out with a boy. And Esperanza, who has now been for a while, especially now since the monkey garden, been thinking about boys and you know what it's like and does she want it does she not want it what it what that feels like so she is approached by a group of guys and it's insinuated that these guys are older potentially even young men not even just like teens she goes over to them and they end up raping her it's just really really heartbreaking This isn't, however, even the first sort of instance of what we would consider for sure, like sexual assault that Esperanza goes through. She has actually had these situations before. For instance, the story that I mentioned earlier where she and um, her sister and her two like BFFs that are her age, you know, they're walking around their neighborhood with their high heels on uh, that day ends because one of them, um, one of the sisters, the other sisters, they walk by like a hobo or something, right? And they're just walking around going like, don't you like my shoes? Don't you like my shoes? They're kids. And the young hobo, the the hobo dude is like, hell yeah, I do. Here, come over here. Let me see. If I give you a dollar, will you kiss me? Right? I want to touch your feet. I want to touch your legs. Uh, it's very instantaneously not okay suddenly so they run home and that story ends with them ripping those shoes off and they never wear those shoes again they never even play with them again right that sounds right another story that she's gone through at this point even before this when I mentioned that she gets a job right when she's 14 yeah the first day on her job she is like, oh, I'm, you know, by myself, I'm very young, I don't fit in, I don't feel safe. And then this sort of older man is very nice to her, like in the cafeteria or something at her job. And she's like, oh, he was a nice man, made me feel kind of, you know, like I had someone to talk to. And then that day, he sort of manipulates her into a situation where they're talking, and she feels very comfortable. And all of a sudden, he fucking kisses her just like full on the mouth Uh, and he's a man right and she's 14 years old so this isn't 
definitely not the first traumatic and sexually assaulting experience that she's had, but this is 1000% when it becomes actual rape. She essentially here, I mean, she's been building it and we've known this since the story has begun that she doesn't want to be in this house. She doesn't want to be someone who stays on Mango Street like the older girls that she meets that do end up staying, right? And they kind of perpetuate their their stories that they've grown up with. They kind of remain and they're stuck here, right? Like Sally gets stuck and she, this is just kind of the nail in the coffin for her of I'm not going to be stuck here. I'm going to get away. She eventually, at the very end of the book, meets uh, Rachel and Lucy's has these little three aunts. They, she, uh, Esperanza calls her the three sisters. And they like tell her her fortune, right? Because they're kind of this sort of mystically older woman-y type of vibe here, like the three fates, right? Yeah. They essentially tell her, you know, oh yeah, you will, you will be gone, but you will come back. You, you have to come back. You have to come back to take as many people as you can with you out, right? You can't ever leave completely. This is always going to be a part of you because that's just how life works. When it ends, Esperanza does vow. She says that she's that she is going to do what the three sisters tell her to do because obviously they're magical, right? They know everything. So yeah, she will. When she returns, she will help as many people as she has left behind get out. And that's kind of how the the book ends. Obviously, there is a, a huge, what is the word I'm looking for? Emphasis here on women's sexuality and feminism. And it is rooted and saturated in the Chicano culture that Sandra Cisneros, you know, grew up in herself and wanted to write about here and wanted to capture. But it is very much also about, you know, women's sexual identity and, you know, feminism and the idea of, especially for her culture and especially in her time when she was writing this and when she grew up herself, it was always centered around that aspect of your identity as a woman when that was not just what she wanted to be. She didn't always just want to be, you know, a wife and a mother and that's all she's good for because that's what women do. You know, she wants more for herself and she wanted to kind of write something that showcases and kind of highlights the pitfalls of that, you know, aspect of her culture's identity when it comes to women. We see that in all of the characters, right? In particular, the the young women characters, uh, like I mentioned, Sally in particular, also Marin. I mentioned Marin in particular uh, earlier, very briefly, but she's um, she's actually one of Louis' cousins, and uh, she is very kind of similar. She's just older, basically, but she comes to stay with Louis' family from Puerto Rico, right? She's uh, and she's very much the same vein as Sally. She wears dark nylon. She wears a lot of makeup. She, quote unquote, has a boyfriend back in Puerto Rico, right? So she always shows off like, oh, you know, um, I'm going back to him someday and then we're going to get married. So like, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, this is just temporary, right? Uh, and Esperanza kind of looks up to Marin in that way of like, ah, oh, she's, she's full of wisdom and she knows everything. And, 
it, it doesn't really happen from what we can tell <laughs> in the story that she doesn't ever really get her boyfriend coming back to her from Puerto Rico to whisk her away again. It's it's kind of the same story of uh, all of kind of the women in this territory and the younger girls are kind of waiting for something to take them away rather than just trying and doing what they can to get away basically because they've learned that that that's not something that they do that the way out is someone else coming particularly a man coming to save you sis Darrell's, um like i said has definitely discussed the her kind of relationship between esperanza and the house on mango streets stories and her own life and her own um experiences uh, they are obviously both very similar, her and Esperanza. They are Mexican-American, born and raised um, in a Hispanic neighborhood in Chicago. Uh, the themes here of this story are uh, obviously dealing with gender. They deal with you know, domestic violence and abuse and rape. It is also um, a coming-of-age story, right? A very sort of a Bildungsroman in terms of uh, the type of story, right? An identity. Uh, belonging and it is also very much in terms of like the Mexican-American culture and Chicano culture like dealing with the ideas of being dual cultured right language um, you know English as a second language sort of um, issues and things like that there's a very heartbreaking story uh, that she tells of one of her neighbors where his he brings his mother um, to his house finally from Mexico and her his mother is very, very abhorrent of being in the US and doesn't want to be here. She's here because she has to be because, you know, her son is the only son that is going to take care of her. And she refuses to try and learn English and refuses, you know, to really sort of assimilate. So when he, you know, has a son or has a child, I believe, and the baby starts learning English sentences as well as Spanish, uh, it, it breaks her heart and is, you know, she's upset and is like, don't speak English, no speak English, no speak English. And, you know, her son is mean to her and is like, you have to get over it because we're in US, the U.S. now and this is just how it's going to be. And she's just heartbroken. Um, yeah, sort of a cultural identity theme going on there as well. The oppression, basically, that women feel up growing feel growing up in Chicano communities uh such as the one on Mango Street is sort of what Cisneros really wanted to kind of highlight as far as um when it is published there is there was very briefly um I'm going to mention this here because there's nothing else to mention it after that um on in 2020 actually very recently January there was a report that the house on Mango Street was going to be adapted into a television series by the same uh, company that uh, did Narcos. That planning was canceled and we haven't really heard anything since then. Uh, that is the as far as the sort of adaptations talks goes here for the house on Mango Street. When it came out, this was Cisneros's um, second major um, book or publication, I should say, highly acclaimed when it came out. Um, it earned particular praise from Hispanic communities and Chicano communities for its very realistic portrayals of their experiences in the US. Um, the New York Times Book Review wrote that Cisneros draws 
on her rich uh, heritage and seduces with precise spare prose, creating unforgettable characters we want to lift off the page. She's not only a gifted writer, but an absolutely essential one. And remember this comes out in 1984. So this is, in today's talk, no one would kind of question like we, you know, we have people like Lin-Manuel Miranda, for instance, and um, other very influential uh, sort of Latinx uh, cultural influences and in art and uh, things like that. Nowadays, we wouldn't blink an eye at that. It's obviously important, but in 1984, it was not as prevalent. And uh, this is one of those uh, publications and books that kind of paves the way really to say that you know, we're here and this is our experience and uh, we're a part of the US too. And um, we have stories to tell. This is what it's like living like us, right? It received the American Book Award from the Before Columbus Foundation in 1985. It is um, often required reading in school curriculums and stuff across the United States. However, it is obviously controversial in the sense that it deals with um, topics that in the US, unfortunately, very recently now, becomes very contentious. The idea that, pe that living in the US is less than ideal. The idea that any sort of race in the US is treated differently or has it worse than any other race. Those types of um, issues and things like that definitely did bring it um, and does actually continue to this day, bring it criticism absolutely been banned from several school curriculums. The American Library Association has listed it actually as um, a frequently challenged book with diverse content. So um, in 2012, for example, there was a school board in Oregon that actually removed it from its middle school curriculum. A former student from St. Helens uh, named Katie Van Winkle actually launched this huge campaign on Facebook uh, to save Mango Street uh, at her school, and she was very successful, actually, and they, the school board for St. Helens voted to bring it back on the curriculum as far as uh, because of her efforts. Um, they had originally removed it because of concerns for the social issues presented, quote-unquote, uh, and she, and everyone else was like, that's bullshit. And uh, they had to, they forced the board to be like, you are right. Unfortunately, that is bullshit. And they brought it back. It was actually part of the 80 plus book grouping that was part of the Tucson Unified School District's K through 12 Mexican American studies curriculum before it was dismantled. So it was dismantled in Arizona's uh, House Bill 2281. And this law in particular, quote, forbids classes to advocate the overthrow of the United States, promote racial resentment, or emphasize students' ethnicity rather than their individuality. <laughs> the, it, it's, it's, like, it's like a Renaissance painting. The, the Arizona. The, the view, the view of Katie on my screen right now, <laughs> with her head in her hands. Fuck Arizona. <laughs> yeah. I uh, wish there had been any books that I read as a kid. Yeah. That were presented to me as a child. And 
elementary school or middle school or even high school that had anything to do with my Chicano culture. Yep. Mm-hmm. A single damn thing. Mm-hmm. I wish one fucking book would have had to do with Latin culture, but none of them did. Mm-hmm. And apparently that's a good thing because you shouldn't emphasize your racial identity according to Tucson in Arizona. Yeah, except every book I read emphasized the fact that white is right because every character was white. So, uh, yeah, it, uh, when- Sorry, I'm being next- heated no, for a minute. You don't need to be sorry. It's totally fine. <laughs> um, being heated is the appropriate response. <laughs> um, so when the Mexican-American studies program was ended, um, all of the books associated with it, which included the House on Mango Street, were removed from the school's curriculum. And in response to this, actually, this was in spring of 2012, the teachers and authors and activists and you know students uh, as well, they formed a caravan. They called it the Libro Traficante Project. Nice. It, he wrote, it originated at the Alamo and it ended in Tucson. And the caravan's participants had workshops that kind of happened all throughout their, their long trek. They distributed books that had been removed from the curriculum, including the House on Mango Street. And in fact, Cisneros herself was on this uh huge project and was on the caravan. She read the House of Mango Street um, frequently on it. She ran workshops about Chicano culture during the caravan uh, and the Libro Traficante project. She brought a bunch of copies of her book with her and distributed them uh, and discussed in all of the workshops, you know, the thematic um, implications and the thematic issues uh, that her novel brings up and talks about, um, you know, her book's autobiographical elements and how, you know, this is a book that was very obviously rooted in real experiences. And that is the purpose of why books like this are so important to have available to children um, in, you know, school and things like that, because it tells them that, you know, their experiences, their real life experiences are real, are not just things that are, you know, so far removed from reality that they, you know, should be ashamed of them or shouldn't, you know, understand them or should leave them behind or, you know, all of those things like, no, like this is real. These are real experiences. They are things that we can celebrate and we can also, you know, it's not necessarily like there's things in the house of mango street that you want to celebrate. She's not saying I want to celebrate the fact that my, you know, narrator got raped, but it's like, there are other young girls out there. Absolutely. Who have lived through these exact circumstances and reading that is going to make them feel seen and reading that is going to make them feel like they're not alone and that they can learn and talk to other people about those things and might help escape the situation find escape find help find connection uh have give them self-esteem in ways that will help them not want to literally throw middle fingers up at the entire country for ignoring their existence you know what i'm saying yeah so 
this book has sold well over 6 million copies. Um, it's been translated into over 20 languages. Uh, it is 1000% undoubtedly, uh, very deservedly a US classic. Uh, and we're gonna end just by talking a little bit about Cisneros herself. I'm not gonna talk too much about Cisneros, um, just a brief, I mean, like I could talk literally forever because she's got a very interesting life, but I'm just gonna cover some kind of highlights. Uh, she was born in Chicago, Illinois on, excuse me, on December 20th, 1954. She was the third of seven children. Um, she is the only surviving daughter. She, her paternal grandfather was a veteran of the Mexican revolution. Uh, and uh, he used uh, his money that he had saved up to send her father to school um, to go to college. Uh, he, however, was just not very interested in college. So he kind of left after a while because he kind of was failing basically. <laughs> so he goes to the U S to kind of get away from his father's anger <laughs> in that regard. And then he meets, uh, what would become, uh, Cisneros's mother, Elvira Cordero Anguiano. They settle once they are married into a, uh, poor Chicago neighborhood. That is where Cisneros' life begins. Yeah. She has a pretty, she's, she's very accomplished. She is so much more accomplished than I uh, will ever be in my life. She goes to Loyola University, Chicago in 1976 and gets a Bachelor of Arts. She gets a Master's of Fine Arts from the Iowa Writers Workshop at the University of Iowa in 1978. Becomes lots of different things. She obviously is a writer, right? Um, five years after she receives her MFA, she goes back to Loyola University, Chicago, where she um, had actually previously gotten her BA. She goes to, excuse me, she goes there to work as an administrative assistant. Before then, had been teaching high school dropouts at the Latino Youth High School in Chicago was teaching creative writing uh, at the University of California, Berkeley and the University of Michigan. And she was the writer in residence at Our Lady of the Lake University in San Antonio, Texas. She um, has also been a college recruiter and she's been an arts administrator. Um, she currently resides in San Miguel de Allende um, in central Mexico. For years, however, she lived in San Antonio, Texas. She uh, has never married. She's never had a family. Um, she's quoted as saying, I've never seen a marriage that is as happy as my living alone. <laughs> uh, so that is her uh, feel on that. She's very obviously um, involved in her biculturalism and her bilingualism as part of kind of um, heavy, important aspects of her writing. And her biggest thing is, just about community and kind of leaving this sort of legacy of um, being a part of her community and kind of lifting up her communities wherever she is, right? Um, she was hugely involved in this in her San Antonio kind of artist community, creates essentially with um, some of her friends basically the Macondo Foundation and the Alfredo Cisneros de Moral Foundation. So the Macondo Foundation was 
on community building and nonviolent social change. That's what the Macondo Foundation was for. And it was officially incorporated in 2006, um, but it began in 1998 um, and it like took place in her kitchen. <laughs> the Macondo Writers Workshop, which has been an annual event ever since, it brings together writers um, who are quote, working on geographic, cultural, economic, social, and spiritual borders. Um, the first iteration that she ever uh, held was 15 participants. It is currently um, often over 120 participants just in the, the first nine years after she had uh, started it. Macondo Foundation currently works out of Our Lady of the Lake University in San Antonio. It actually puts out awards. It, um, for instance, has the Gloria E. Uh, Anzaldua Milagro Award. It provides Chicano writers essentially support. They also put out the Elvira Cordero Cisneros Award. It was created in the memory, of course, of Cisneros's mother. It offer the foundation offers services to members um, like health insurance. It offers them the opportunity to um, participate in a residency program called the Casa Azul Residency Program. It provides them in this with a furnished room, basically, um, in uh, what they call Casa Azul, which is a blue house across the street from where the headquarters of the Macondo Foundation is, basically. Cisneros, uh, like I said, also founded the Alfredo Cisneros de Morel Foundation in 1999. It was named uh, in memory for father. It has awarded to date over $75,500 to writers born in Texas, writing about Texas or living in Texas since 2007. And um, Cisneros has also co-founded with Bryce Milligan, the annual Texas Small Book Fair, um, which was the forerunner to the Inter-American Book Fair. And uh, in terms of her awards and stuff, she was actually awarded in September, 2016, the National Medal of Arts. Um, it was the 2015 National Medal of Arts. She was awarded the PEN uh, by PEN America in 2019, the PEN Nabokov Award for Achievement in International Literature. She has received fellowships from the National Endowment of the Arts um, in 1981 and 1988. In 1985, she was presented with the American Book Award by the Fort Columbus Foundation for the House on Mango Street. Um, and she's received a Frank Dobby Artists Fellowship. She um, came first and second in the Segundo Concurso uh, Nacional de, Cuente, de Cuento Chicano. She's received um, the Quality Paperback Book Club New Voices Award, the Ensfield Wolf Book Award, the Penn Center West Award for Best Fiction, um, the Lannan Foundation Literary Award for um, one of her other uh, publications called Woman Hollering Creek and Other Stories. Uh, in fact, that publication was selected as Noteworthy Book of the Year by the New York Times and the American Library Journal. Another publication of hers, um, called Loose Woman, which is an anthology. It won the Mountain and Plains Booksellers Awards. She actually has been recognized by the State University of New York um, with an honorary doctorate from Purchase in 1993. She was granted a MacArthur Fellowship in 1995. In 2003, um, one of her other publications um, was given the Premio Napoli Award in 2005. It was also shortlisted for the Dublin International um, Impact Award 
It was nominated for the Orange Prize in England. In 2003, Cisneros, um, she became a part of uh, the second group of recipients of the Texas Cultural Trust Texas Medal of Arts. Um, and in 2016, she was given an honorary doctorate of letters by the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. So that's a lot of accolades. She's getting shit done. She's uh, kicking ass and taking names all over the damn place and makes me feel very inadequate as a double uh, degreed person. Yeah, she is just off the charts uh, writing and uh, creating and working her little ass off on uh, all of the community things that she wants to accomplish and uh, just incredibly inspiring and a wonderful publication. And that is The House on Mango Street. That was great. And I'm genuinely upset I never had to read it. And it's hard because, I mean, you could read it, you could read it in middle school for sure. You could even read it as a like early elementary school, I would say even. Like if you're an elementary school reader who kind of can read at higher levels, you could access this book for sure. Um, Yeah, I'd say if you're 10 and up, probably. Yeah, essentially. Younger than that, they're not going to understand what the rape and the the sexual undertones of the story mean. Yeah, it is a a good one. And literally the reason that we covered it was because I was bored um a couple weeks ago and I was like I want to read something and I don't want to read something new because I'm an awful person and never do even though I have a huge shelf of stuff that I'm going to be reading and I was like no I'm just gonna reread something and I picked rereading House on Mango Street because I hadn't read it in a while and I was like I should go to House on Mango Street so I liked it it was really good and now I want to read it (laughs) so now for something completely different in keeping with our current kind of tradition here um, and doing Disney Channel original movies, I chose to do one that I think I only watched like once or twice as a kid. So this one was not clearly not a favorite, not something I watched all the time, not something I went out of my way to see, even though I was really into the two main characters, like they're those particular actors. So I watched 2003's You Wish. Now, if that does not ring any bells, I'm not shocked because I literally had to like look up a synopsis from it it and like look at the pictures to remember anything about this film. I don't remember a lot of the actual movie, but I do know what movie you're talking about. I can see some of it in my mind's eye when you say it okay i have no idea what it's about though <laughs> so this movie stars uh aj trouth as the main character he was twitty from even stevens the best friend mm-hmm. his best female friend in this movie is played by lilane who you will recognize as miranda from yes! lizzie mcguire and the third main character in this film is played by Spencer Breslin. His sister is definitely more popular now, but in the early 2000s, he was the more popular of the two siblings. Yeah. Um, He was everywhere. He was in The Cat in the Hat. He was in The The Santa Claus 2 and 3. He was in the movie The Kid. He was 
Which is he, uh, he like blew up phenomenal movie. The kid <laughs> is Bruce Willis, Spencer Breslin, amazing. Yes. So this movie is the story of Alex, played by AJ Trout, who is your typical everyday, like 15, 16 year old question mark. We don't actually get his age, but sometime in high school. He's your typical kid. He's kind of, um, he's on the football team, but he's kind of like on the nerdy side or like not cool kids, quote unquote, side of life. Um, his best friend, Lelaine, or I don't, I forgot her name already in this movie, but played by Lelaine, his best friend is, um, she's like one of the nerdy, like skater kids. She's not a jock or a cheerleader or anything and all of his friends are very much like into the skating and just outside of the box kind of thing like he collects coins like that's his fucking thing he collects coins so he gets made fun of and picked on by his teammates because he doesn't fit in with the jocks and he you know associates himself with these nerdier kids these loser kids all the while this is happening, he is dealing with his little brother, Stevie, played by Spencer Breslin. And Stevie is your typical little brother. Mm-hmm. Remember that AJ Trout is somewhere in high school, maybe 15, 16. His little brother is like 10. Now, even if you are an only child like me, you recognize your friends who had little brothers or sisters who followed them around constantly and wanted to do everything that they did and wanted to be where they were and wanted to be involved in whatever the bigger sibling was doing. Um, For me, when I was a kid, that was Sam. She was my little sibling that was following me around. (laughs) But because there's not such a huge age gap, it didn't really bug me. Me and Sam (laughs) were pretty close, so it was fine. Uh, but I do know people who it was annoying to. We had uh, yeah. we had really close okay. friends down the street. Armando, Amy. <laughs> yeah, we had really close friends down the street. Um, shout out to Armando, who was my age, and Amy, who was Sam's age, who were, were like BFFs <laughs> with, and their little brother, Moises, who yeah. just like followed us around but couldn't do any of the shit that we were doing because he was like five yeah. at the time. And we were in middle school, high school. We had a baby and that baby is now a teenager or something like that because that's yes. just how time works. Apparently, I guess no one informed me, but that's how time works, I guess. Oh yeah. The yeah. littlest, the littlest one, he's a, he's a grown man now. So, oh, shut up. I can't. <laughs> so, um, yes, Stevie is very much the kid brother. He's following his brother around, you know, doing all the, trying to do all the different things that he's doing. It starts out, they're like playing paintball or whatever, like pretend paintball um, with each other. And there's very much like an adoration, love feeling between the brothers that you can see. When they get home, however, you can see Alex is being pushed to his limits by um stevie and all the things that little brothers are allowed to get away with when you have a full-on teen older sibling so every little thing that happens in the house stevie is able to get away with right and get alex in trouble 
Alex has told Stevie many times, stay out of my room when I'm not there. Like you can only go in my room when I'm there. I don't want you fucking up my shit. Uh, There are three things in this whole house that you are not allowed to touch, period. And it's my coin collection and my roller skates, my roller blades. And uh, what was the last thing? His computer or something like that. And in this movie, throughout the course of this movie, Stevie ends up touching two of the three items without any fucking permission. And rather than Stevie getting in trouble for doing those things, Alex gets in trouble for getting upset at Stevie the tale because his parents just fucking suck. Like, full stop. His parents do not pay attention to Alex, like, at all and just view Stevie as an angel and it is trash. <laughs> it is bad parenting for real. They oh. they suck. So the first instance of this happening, Alex walks up to his room and Stevie is in his room playing with his coin collection. And this sets Alex off and he says, "Get out of my room, whatever." And Stevie threatens to yell basically uh, to the parents and he's like no bro don't yell it's fine like you just need to leave like there are things I don't want you to touch and it's my coin collection because I am an avid coin collector and these are worth a lot of money like get the fuck out of my out of my room right so Stevie leaves and then the next morning like not even 12 hours has gone by pretty much he Alex gets up and goes to skate to school and finds his rollerblades in Stevie's room covered in jelly because Ah. he's 10 and 10 year olds are gross and messy. Yes. So as he should have, Alex kind of flips his lid and yells at Stevie. Like he does not react how most teenagers react. He's very calm as far as reactions go i have seen brothers literally punch each other because they did something that the other brother didn't like like just because that's how kids are but he was just like get away from my stuff get out of here like just kind of explodes on him but in a cute disney way like right tone down so he gets mad at him and Stevie screams for his parents, of course. And his parents come up and basically say, you be nice to your brother. He's only 10. It, he didn't mean to do that. Go to your, like, you're fine. Go to your room or whatever. Wow. Yeah. And it's just a mess. So we get a little bit of backstory or we get a little bit of, information i guess as this day progresses on how alex's life is at school and how he where he fits basically in the social hierarchy of his high school so like i said he is a jock but he is not like with the jocks and the cheerleaders he is like low bottom of the barrel like least cool jock that exists at the school 
the other, the head like quarterback is like picking on him, like tosses a pizza on his head. It was like a whole fucking thing. What the fuck? Is a who, mess. Who, who would waste a perfectly good goddamn pizza on apparently, that shit? Apparently the quarterback of this high school's team because it happens again. Moron. Like in the movie. Moron. If this person had been in my high school, every single person in my graduating class would have been like, you fucking idiot. We could have eaten that pizza, you piece of shit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so we kind of get this idea. A um, couple days go by. Alex um, has a football game coming up and he is basically a bench warmer on the team. He doesn't ever get to play. And he tells his parents like, hey, just make sure that um, Stevie doesn't embarrass me. And he talks to Stevie before the game. You promise me you're not going to shout my name this time. Because I guess Stevie in previous or prior to this event has been yelling Alex's name, like getting the crowd to cheer for Alex, um, which is, I mean, which is very sweet. It's very sweet, but Alex doesn't play. Right. So it's just embarrassing. Right, because he's not even on the field. He's or not whatever. even on the field. <laughs> so Stevie says, yes, I promise I'm not going to have anyone chant. I'm not going to do it that this game. And then he fucking does because he's a little kid. Dick. Yeah. So Stevie gets the whole crowd to yell, go Alex, go Alex, go Alex. And the head cheerleader, who Alex has a crush on, of course, mm-hmm. comes up to him on the bench and is like, isn't your name Alex? Because she like clearly does not give a fuck about him. And right. he's like, yeah, why? And she's like, uh, I think they're cheering for you, which is really sad because you're on the bench. And she's like super bitchy about it. You know, the stereotype yeah. of the head cheerleader. Of course. That's yeah. her. So Alex is just fucking mad, right? He's just steamed up. Like, this is bullshit. And the coach is like, eh, they're cheering his name. Why the fuck not? So the coach puts him into the game. And he, on his way out to the field, he mows over the head cheerleader and knocks her into the mud. Hilarious. Uh, Just because he's clumsy and wasn't paying attention. Yeah. And he apologizes and then gets onto the field. And the play is going to be like, okay, the quarterback's going to throw it directly to you. Get ready. Like, this is your one shot, right? And he immediately gets tackled, like, right off the line. Like, as soon as the play is snapped, as soon as the ball is snapped, he gets just tackled in the mud. And it is embarrassing. (laughs) Kid is fucked up. So he's super mad at Stevie. And again, he gets mad at home, like, bruh this is not okay and his parents come down on him like you cannot get mad at stevie he's only a kid he you know blah 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 trash trash parenting so his parents tell him that this coming weekend like the following weekend they're going to some event like in the like a lunch or something with the partners at the mom's law firm so he has to babysit Stevie all day. And he's like, but I already had plans with my best friend. Like, we're going to go to the coin store and like pick out some new, we're going to buy some new coins for our coin collections. And the mom's like, well, take him with, take Stevie with you. Like, 
sorry, but not sorry. You have to babysit your little brother. So okay, Alex well, is like, going to be sitting around and I'm going to be treating him over at damn well, please. Yeah. Just FYI. So Alex said, fucking fine. Okay, let's go. So they go to the mall, you know, skip ahead to the end of the week again, because school's not important. <laughs> they never, never get important. to the <laughs> day when the parents are gone. Um, and Alex takes Stevie to the mall with his male best friend who I can't remember his name right now. He was forgettable. Um, <laughs> and he sets, he has Stevie sit down on a bench outside of the coin shop and he goes and gets like $20 in quarters and, um, like a whole bunch of fries from like the food court and brings them to Stevie and is like, here, sit down and eat this, put these quarters in your pocket. Like I'm going to go to the, me and let's call him Brad. I don't fucking remember what his name was. Me and Brad are going to go to the coin shop and we're going to look at some coins. And as soon as we're done, then we'll go to the arcade and we'll chill and it'll be fucking great. Cause that's what Stevie wanted to do anyways. Cause he's a kid. I feel that. For sure. And this is, let me point out, this is a big ass mall. This isn't like the mall in the small town where me and Sam grew up. This is a huge, <laughs> like three story mall. It's got escalators and elevators. Like yeah. we're talking like hella fucking stores mall. Yeah. To In perspective, you know, you're in a small town when your mall is one story. It is maybe two blocks i think it's two full blocks long not not more than that yeah the whole complex is like it's two small city blocks yeah uh when we first went to even just a normal size mall we were like holy shit this is this place is huge oh my god i remember (laughs) that so specifically the very first time we went to that fucking mall in Concord. Oh my I God. I think it was it. Yes. My, both of our eyes were it like, like, where are we? It was like, like we were the in, size of oranges. It was like we were in like almost like a theme park. It was yeah. that kind of level of like from this small to this large sort of feel. <laughs> For perspective. Okay. So we currently live in. Fresno, the Fresno area, and we get commercials for places like Cracker Barrel that does not exist here. Like that's just not a store or not a restaurant that exists in this area, but still we get commercials for it. Okay. Where we grew up, we'd get all the regular national commercials for big Mm -hmm. stores, you know, Macy's, Abercrombie, Tommy Hilfiger, all these different places that we had never seen in our lives okay because mm-hmm. they did not exist at our mall our mall had a jc Penney's and a mervyn's and a sears and then like a yankee candle store and a hot topic and a b dalton and bath we and barely works, had a b we barely had a hot topic. there huh that was it. i said bath and body works i think was the only thing that was always there that yeah. was mainstream yeah and we had a yeah. pack sun and an anchor blue for those of you which who came old later yeah which days. came when we were like in our teens yeah Yeah. and it had a small arcade and a small food court but when we got to this fucking mall when (laughs) we were so i had just started college and our grandpa had moved um 
to the Bay Area. So we got to go to this mall like on Thanksgiving or whatever for uh, Black Friday. And our, our grandfather, who is very generous with his money, was like, here you go. Here's like a thousand dollars each or however much fucking money. Yeah, it was like two hundred dollars a piece, but it was and like insane he, amounts of money to an 18 and, and 16. Yeah, we were like, what this is more money than we've ever seen in our entire lives. And he yeah, was like, but then, here's that each. Go to yeah, the mall. And then we walked into this mall and there's like fucking all the stores that we had ever seen a commercial of that had never existed in our lives that we didn't know actually existed. Yeah. Like I can distinctly remember walking by, uh, what was it? Hollister? No, it was Abercrombie. And they had a sure legitimate that. male model standing in there just shirtless. And right. we walked by it and I was like, what the fuck? And we just I stood totally there and stared that. at him for a minute. <laughs> we were very much like that, that guy is actually there. Like his actual job is just to like stand there right now and be yeah, the just model stand the there shirtless in these jeans and look. <laughs> it was mind blowing. Okay. So Sorry. perspective, this anyway. fucking mall in this movie was huge. <laughs> like I insanely huge. I couldn't even picture it when I, I couldn't fathom this when I was in middle school, but it was like the mall that they went to in the movie. So Alex gives Stevie like a shit ton of French fries and $20 and quarters and says, sit, sit on the bench until I'm done looking at coins with Brad and we will figure it out. Okay. And just before um, Alex gives Stevie all of these things, like Alex is at the food court or whatever. The guy who owns the coin shop is coming in and he's carrying a bunch of packages it's played by tim reed who is the dad on sister sister uh he is coming in and he has like a bunch of boxes in his hand so he's having trouble like seeing and he ends up slipping and fall almost slipping and falling um and getting really hurt on some french fries that were like on the ground because kids are horrible and malls are gross yeah and stevie ends up saving him from hurting himself like he catches the end of his fall uh, so that he doesn't like super fuck himself over. So in return, Tim Reed gives him this special coin that was in his pocket and says, you know, this will grant you one wish. Like you, it only will give you one wish, but apparently this will give you a wish. I've had it in my pocket for a long time, but I haven't used it, but you basically saved my life. So here you go. Right. So then Stevie goes back and sits on the on the bench his brother comes gives him the fries and the money and then goes into the coin shop to start talking with tim reed about the new coins that had come in by the way just a very brief aside there's no reason for this dumb little kid right now to be upset with his lot in life if i if you for instance or any of my older siblings had sat me down in a goddamn mall, especially like a regular size mall and not like the Merced mall and given me an entire plate of fucking fries and a bunch of quarters just by myself for like an hour, uh, I would have done anything they fucking told me to do. Oh my God, that's like my fucking dream. <laughs> when yes. I was his age. You Holy are correct. Shit. That is the dream. So remind you, they're getting there when this store opened, yes? Tim Reed, like, turns to Alex and is like, okay, well, I, we got to get going because, like, it's time to close up the store. 
And Alex is like, the fuck? What do you mean it's time to close at the store? What time is it? And Tim Reese says 6.30. So presumably this mall has been open since like 10, maybe 11 o'clock because that's pretty much when malls open. This bitch spent seven and a half hours looking at fucking coins while his 10-year-old brother was supposed to be sitting on a bench behind him. Okay? So just like any fucking sane person would okay stevie eats all his french fries gets tired of waiting on this bench and walks to the arcade himself hell yeah especially i got quarters in my pocket hell yeah that's what i'm doing all day so he's playing games and whatever and then he starts he runs out of coins he almost uses the special coin that tim reed gave him but decides not to and um sorry and then alex realizes that it's fucking 6 30 so alex is like oh shit i have to like he walks out and his brother's not on the bench so then he freaks out and starts running around the mall trying to find him he immediately goes to the arcade not there there there's this cool scene in this instance that happens in all sorts of movies that have to do with multi-level buildings where the people like pass each other on like one's going um up an escalator and the other one's going down an elevator so they don't notice each other but it happens several times in this scene yeah um so alex is looking all over the mall he's freaking out like shit i lost my brother like what he could be hurt he could be injured he could have been kidnapped like my parents are gonna kill me what the fuck am i gonna do and stevie who is 10 and is not he's very calm he's not super freaked out but he gets to a point where a long he, time yeah. where he finds a security guard and is like hey can you call my mom like yeah. i want to go home I, sure. what else am i going to do here like i can't just yeah. sit and sit around i have no idea where my brother is like because he goes back after he finishes at the arcade he goes back to the coin store but the coin store is closed so he doesn't know right. where his brother is it's like they keep missing oh, each shit. other yeah so they call the mom, the mom comes and picks them up. And the next scene is them sitting in the living room, getting berated by the parents or Alex getting berated by the parents. Um, rightfully so, like he fucked up, but it wasn't just his fault. Like Stevie had, should have stayed on the bench, should have at least come into the store and got him or something like rather than just walking away. They right. were both at fault, but of course the parents being on Stevie's side punish Alex super hard and are like okay well you know you're punished for two weeks you can't there's no tv there's no roller skating there's no this there's no that like sorry bud like it's school and football and that's it like right you're fucked um so this is something that I could definitely I mean it's a large shit could have happened here oh for sure any of the other shit his parents oh for sure for for being an asshole for him about that this this warrants a punishment for sure looking at it now as an adult and in 2021 this situation would have prompted a much harder yeah gauntlet being thrown at the the older sibling because the world is i don't want to say it's a scarier place but it is like it was always a scary place it was always a scary place but we know it more about it because of our uh a bit like the ability to find information like we have 
endless, countless information at our fingertips. So we are constantly being inundated with stories of kids being kidnapped and murdered and killed. Like, yeah, it's horrible. And it was happening back then too. We just weren't all at, be able able to access how often it was happening yes. everywhere all the time. And yeah. on top of all that, like us not just generally talking about it all the time and knowing about it, parenting as a whole was very looser. Yes. Or was yeah much looser then than it is now um and like latchkey kids were it was very like okay you're home from school now just sit and wait till we get there like you're cool yeah you'll be fine there's food in the thing like do your own thing and that's not you can take care of yourself yeah yeah things have changed a lot in 20 years so watching this now as an adult the reaction was not as harsh as it probably should have been but watching it 20 like with 20 years ago eyes with 2003 eyes this was like okay yeah like they both fucked up kind of like it's it'll be all right the big deal yeah Mm -hmm. yeah so alex says his frustration to his parents like you guys always do this to me stevie is never at fault like Stevie is the golden child. He can do no wrong. I'm always the one getting in trouble. And, and his mom was, just keeps like, I didn't want him with me today anyway. Yeah, sure. like Stevie's 10. Stevie's 10. He doesn't know any better. And I'm like, as someone who takes care of a 10-year-old, he knows better. Like yes. 10 year, you are not giving 10-year-olds enough credit. 10-year-olds <laughs> fucking know better. He's not That's five. Awesome. Yes. Like for sure. Yeah. This is <laughs> 10 year olds especially 10 year olds in the year 2003 like being as independent as kids were in the early 2000s like yeah just garbage parenting those this whole movie (laughs) okay so alex goes to bed and he's fucking mad as he should be and his brother tries to come and talk to him in his room and Alex is just like, no, you are banned from my room. I don't want you touching any of my shit. You are not allowed in this room. I don't ever want to, like, I don't want to see you right now. And kind of as an apology, because Stevie is aware, like he recognizes that he messed up. He gives Alex the the coin that the coin guy gave him. And is like, it's supposed to grant you a wish. Here you go. And he just leaves. And he's like, okay, I, I fucked up. I get it. You're mad. We'll go over this in the morning. Yeah. So Alex takes the coin and gets, fr- is he's super frustrated. He lays down in bed and he kind of chucks it onto his nightstand and kind of muddles under his breath. Like, uh, I wish I was an only child basically. Yeah. And he goes to sleep. You know, not thinking anything of it because it's just a fucking coin. Like, right. And he wouldn't, he was just upset. Your 10 year old brother just said, it grants a wish. Yeah. yeah. I don't fucking think that's serious. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. yeah, yeah. Yeah. So <laughs> Alex goes to sleep. And when he wakes up the next morning, everything is different. His entire house is painted a different color. His room is entirely different. Uh, He's got like sports trophies all over his room. His haircut is different and he gets up out of bed and he's confused and he starts looking around and noticing things that are different, noticing the sports trophies for him, like 
best quarterback or best football player of the year, whatever the fuck. Nice. And he's just like, what the hell? And then he walks out into the hallway and the whole house interior is blue now. It was like beige before. And he's like, okay, what the fuck? Like, this is weird. <laughs> yeah. And he goes down to see his parents and his parents who are typically dressed kind of casually, uh, their jobs kind of require them to, don't require them to be super fancy. They're just kind of dressed casually. He goes downstairs and his parents are dressed in like suits. Like they're legitimate oh, wow. business people. Right. And he goes down and starts asking them questions like, you know, what's for breakfast? What's this and what's that? Because there's like an order to the things that they always have. Yeah. And his parents are like, what are you talking about? Like, we haven't done that since you were a little kid and blah, 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 blah. So and he starts asking questions like where's stevie and what's this and what's that and they're like bruh the house has always been blue who the fuck is stevie like we got to go to work bye see you at the game tomorrow or like we'll see you at the game tonight or whatever it is Hmm. and he's just fucking confused so he goes running through the house and he goes to stevie's room and it's just full of gym equipment because that's what you do with a spare room you turn it into a home gym right so still confused he's like what the fuck and then he gets dressed and he goes to school at school he is greeted by his jock friends like the the super popular jocks from his previous life and now he is the most popular jock he is dating the head cheerleader he is the most like he doesn't talk to the to the loser kids he's the best you know whatever and all of these things that he wanted in his previous life kind of yearned for in his previous life are now his real life he's the star he tries to talk to lalane's character his best friend his best female friend and she's like why the fuck are you talking to me like we're not friends And his other best friend, his male best friend, like hates his guts because he's the one who always gets picked on now. Now that there's no Alex in the loser world, his best friend, Brad, is the loser that gets picked on with pizzas on his head all the time. Trash. Um, And he... Wasting perfectly good pizzas. Yeah. So he is generally really enjoying himself the first couple of days of this he's like hell yeah i'm an only child like we've got all the money like i get to go to football camp like i've gone to football camps and all these different things because we could afford it because we didn't have two kids and i got a dog because i wanted a dog and not a turkey because fucking my little brother wanted a turkey is a whole thing (laughs) yeah yeah, he, they fucking got a turkey for a pet because that's what the little kid wanted. That's what well, they buried the lead here. You were like, by the way, this entire family's pet is not like a chihuahua. It's not like a poodle. It's not even like a golden retriever, a German no. shepherd, a Labrador. It's a goddamn no, They turkey. brought a fucking turkey. <laughs> so in the scene, in the before the wish times, they go to like a like a pet adoption fair thing that their town is holding and alex is like i want a dog like let's get a fucking dog i'm here for it and stevie's like no i want a bunny i want a bunny and his parents are like 
gonna side with stevie of course because they always side with stevie and alex is just like no i don't like bunnies are dumb we don't need a bunny we need a dog and then stevie fucking sees a turkey and they end up adopting a turkey cringe it's so fucking stupid where where do these people live in the u.s that this is a thing who the fuck i don't understand who who the fuck knows (laughs) somewhere with a big ass mall yeah i guess fucking for real right yeah couldn't have been that small of a town because it was a big ass (laughs) fucking mall okay so Alex is kind of in love with his life. There's no Stevie around. There's, you know, he's the most popular guy in school. He's got the most popular girlfriend. Things are going great. Um, The first Saturday uh, that he's in this life, there's, he wakes up and he's disappointed that there's no, what is it? They call it funny pancakes or something like that. Fancy pancakes. I don't know. His dad always makes pancakes like Saturday morning. Like that's, nothing right you get into a routine and that's the thing yeah and he comes downstairs and he's like where's the fancy pancakes and he's like bro i haven't done that since we were since you were five what are you talking about and he's starting to realize this alternate world that i'm in fucking sucks bro like there's no fancy pancakes what the shit is this and his parents are like okay we'll see you at the game sweet and they go to the game and he's like he doesn't know what position he plays at this point they like i don't know they just didn't go to practice all week who the fuck knows but he has to ask like one of the other one of the dumb guys on the team like what position do i play finds out he's the quarterback and he's like oh fuck this is gonna be embarrassing so he goes out and his very first play is just atrocious. Like he gets sacked immediately. Oh, and then his dad comes down and talks to him who has been noticing that things are fucking weird this last week because his brother right. keeps, or Alex keeps asking like about a brother that doesn't exist and like the Turkey right. and these weird things. So he's like, dude, just remember from that football camp you went to, you were super scared of that big guy, but then you figured it out and then you weren't scared of him anymore and then you won the game, right? Do that right here. I don't remember that. I don't remember that. (laughs) Pep talk of the century, dad. Thanks. So he remembers, quote unquote, this happening and ends up going and being great and they win the game and then the after party is of course at his house because his parents are cool i guess um and his girlfriend's kind of all over him and oh jesus uh lelaine ends up there and he like says hi to her in passing like hi abby and just like walks by her because she's just like but like i don't fucking know you why do you keep trying to talk to me like you've always been a dick why are you talking to me and then they are there's like all the jocks in the kitchen around all the pizza and they're like eating pizza and stuff and then his other best friend pizza dumbasses yeah his other best friend brad uh the old best friend comes in to like deliver food because he works at a deliver like a food delivery service thing um and he delivers chicken to the place and then the rest of the jocks like pick on him and like throw up like pizza his head which was fucking stupid 
so again, Alex is becoming more and more aware that this world fucking sucks because he's hurting the people that he cares about and he's not happy like he thought he would be. Right. All the while, while this is happening, um, we are vaguely aware of the whereabouts of Stevie. So Stevie, his little brother from the pre-wish world, is now an actor named Terrence who plays a character on a show called Where's Stevie? So he is an actor in this world and he is on the cover of all sorts of magazines and all these different things. So Alex keeps being reminded of him, keeps catching glimpses of him on TV and is like, that's my fucking brother. And everyone's like, what? (laughs) No, that's just, that's Terrence. He plays Stevie from where stevie so he is missing he's finally starting to miss stevie at this point and realizes that if he wants to fix this he needs to find stevie like maybe in this world stevie is the one with the coin or stevie knows how to fix this or whatever so terrence or stevie i guess ends up being in his town for filming their show, whatever. And he goes to the filming to go, he's like gonna try and get an autograph, but he really just needs to talk to him and like, hey, you were my brother in this past weird life. And I don't like, we need to, I don't know how to fix it. Um, So he gets backstage and he ends up talking to him and the kid, Spencer Breslin's character, Terrence, in this moment is just depressed. Like he is in a horrible situation, child actor. Like he hates his life, basically. He's got like a child wrangler, essentially, like a nanny agent type person who like carts him from place to place and forces him to like smile and do all these different things. And he never gets to be a real kid, which is the dream, which is a very common trope in all sorts of movies where the kid is like super rich or super famous. Like, I just want to be normal for a minute. Like, I don't want to deal with this shit. So he gets to talking with Alex about, you know, kind of wanting to be a normal kid. And then Alex starts spouting about how like we used to be brothers and all of this different thing. And Terrence is like, bro, what? Security, bye. Right, security. Hey, bye. So he gets Alex escorted out with security. Alex is just, this is the worst part of this movie, I think. Uh, He walks out and is just super sad because like Stevie doesn't want anything to do with him. His life sucks. Like everything sucks. And he plays, he fucking like walks down the street to this montage set to Vanessa Carlton's Thousand Miles. Why? 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 It was so like, okay, the <laughs> lyrics, the lyrics of a thousand miles fit with the story, but the song itself did right. not fit with the mood of this moment at all. And the way that they shot the scene, they made it look like her thousand miles music video, where it would alternate between like close-ups on her like slow-moing on her piano like singing or just whatever normal speed on her piano 
And then it would do that like super fast paced, like traffic thing. Like you would see all the traffic like whizzing by her in the background. It kept doing that during this whole montage of the song where, where Alex was just like thinking of pastimes that he had had with Stevie. It was the fucking most. (laughs) The most, the most. And honestly, one of the first times that I can remember a Disney, a decom having a real song in it. Like a yeah, popular on the radio song. Crazy show, yeah. yeah. Fucking weird. So Alex is walking down the street. He doesn't know what to do. He's like, fuck, I guess I'm just stuck here. And like, this is going to be horrible. And then Stevie drives by, or Terrence, I guess, drives by in his limo. And he makes his limo driver stop and is like, hey, let me get out. I want to talk to my friend. So he gets out and he starts talking to his friend and he's like, okay, I'm just going to walk to the hotel, like limo driver. You can follow me, follow behind me because I'm a child and this is just a strange teenager that I know, I guess, but you're going to walk behind, you're going to follow us right? Um, and we'll meet you at the hotel. So Alex is like cheered up by this moment because Stevie actually wants to hang out with him um, and they start walking. And then Alex comes up with the plan. And he's like, hey, when I say chocolate, run to your left. Chocolate. And then they fucking book it and just ditch the limo driver, right? They leave. They're like, fucking bye. Yep. And they end up talking. We learn more about Terrence and how shitty his childhood has been because he's an actor and he isn't allowed to be a real kid at all, which fucking sucks. Like, that's the reason most child actors just end up stopping stopping living horrible adult lives being addicted to things like speaking of this movie and lalane i'm pretty sure that's why she ends up stopping after lizzie mcguire i don't think she does really anything else yeah she did like this and a couple of other uh movies and stuff and then she took a huge break and then came back yeah i don't know like 10 years ago yeah not even 10 years five years ago yeah so they're talking about how much Stevie's life sucks. They're talking about like Alex and how shitty his life is uh, and like all of these different things and how they used to be brothers. So the cops, they, they basically spend all day out just walking and talking and the cops pull up on them basically and are like, uh, first off, your children you shouldn't be out late this late and two this is a movie star who has been reported missing like you can't just kidnap a movie star yeah yeah so they take him to um alex's house where his like nanny babysitter agent shows up to pick him up and they're kind of talking with the parents and you know the parents are kind of aware that some weird, like Alex is being weird and all these different things. And they're super happy to meet Stevie. And Stevie's just like, I just wanted to be a normal kid. Like Alex was a cool friend. And Stevie invites Alex to set tomorrow. Like, hey, let's hang out tomorrow. I'll get you a pass. This is my, tomorrow's my last day in town. Like come hang out. So he does. And the next day they're chilling and they go and talk to, Uh, Abby who is Lelaine's character and they explain the situation to her basically like shit's wild we used to be brothers I made a wish on this random coin we need to find this random coin in this other world we were best friends and all these different things and she's like fucking really 
Like how, why should I believe you? You've always been a dick. And he starts naming off like things only a best friend would know, right? Like oh, your, no. your, your grandma was this, your best, your favorite <laughs> snack is this. You like to do this when you are a, like, you know, all these right. different things that only a BFF would know. And she's like, right. okay, bro, I've heard enough. Like you've proved your point. Yeah, or clearly yeah. your story is completely <laughs> true, completely <laughs> legitimate. You are from a different dimension. Let's figure this the fuck out. So Alex has convinced Abby that they were BFFs in a past life and that he needs her help to find the guy who runs the coin shop because the coin shop is now closed. Like he shut it down because without Spencer there or without Spencer Breslin there to save him from his fall, Tim Reed fell and busted his ankle and was not able to continue working. So he had to shut down his shop. Oh no. Yeah, it's a whole chain of events that happened because this little kid wasn't there. Right. Butterfly effect, etc. Ashton yeah. Kutcher was hanging out in the wings. Yeah. So Abby uh was running like this fundraiser thing where she was selling raffle tickets in the mall. And um Alex remembered that the guy who runs the coin shop had bought a, a raffle ticket from her like right at the same time that he was buying a raffle ticket from her and on the raffle tickets you had to put like your name and your address and your phone number or your whatever so he's like oh shit you have that guy's address like let's find his address within the raffle tickets which they do and then let's go meet him let's go find him and talk to him so they go to his apartment and he lives like fucking a million stories up in this building well not really but like three or four stories up in this building they get to his apartment and it's being painted and it's empty and they ask one of the other tenants like hey where's the guy who lives here and she says oh he moved because the stairs were too much for him with his injury so like do you know where he went he went to this retirement community so he goes they go to the retirement community to talk to him and he's like i don't have I don't have read up in a retirement place at so in this movie in this movie he's like made up to be like okay 70 he's not like actual Tim Reed like age good because I was about to say motherfuckers he is not that old yeah so he's like in a retirement community and they find him and they're asking him like Alex is asking him about this specific coin that has an owl on it like you you know I need this coin so I can make everything go back to how it was. And Tim Reed's basically like, I don't have this coin. Um, I closed the store. Like maybe I might've given it to the person who last, like the last person to purchase coins from me, but I don't have a log of that because it's 2003 and people weren't using computers here. Okay. It was just like, let, let me punch in your numbers on a calculator. Give me some money. Okay. So Alex is super defeated. He's like, fuck, he doesn't have this coin. There's no way to fix this. Like my life's just going to suck. He takes like Spencer Breslin has to leave and he takes Abby home and then he goes home and he's just like fucking devastated. Okay. He walks into his room and he lays down or sits down on his bed and he's just fucking upset. And his dad comes in and is like, Hey bud, like, sorry for like shit that got out of hand yesterday like with the um spencer breslin stuff him being an actor and all this weird shit 
sorry that that got out of hand. I got you an early birthday present. Like here it is in a little box and he hands him the box and he's like, thanks dad. Bye. And he like, doesn't, he's like super dick to his dad. Uh, Cause he's just upset. And the dad's like, Oh, okay. Bye. And just walks out of the room, which is not how a good parent would react to that. But right. sure. Why the fuck not? Right. So caught up in his emotions he's super fucking upset and he's like i don't want any of this and he throws he like chucks the box across the room and it bursts open and guess what it's a bunch of fucking coins like old mm-hmm. coins which he is into even though he's a jock like he still has a collection from when he was a little kid and was really into coins yeah so his dad, noticing that he had gotten back into it in his new life, because he had never really gotten over it in his pre-wish life, got him a box of just a random assortment of ancient coins. So he chucks his box across the room and he hears all the clinking, clinking, and he hears a spinning coin. Like it's a very distinct sound. A coin is spinning on his desk and then it doesn't fall. And he's like, what the fuck? And he looks up at it and it's the coin. He finds the owl coin. So he jumps up out of bed and he grabs the coin and he's like, holy shit, this is the one. This is it. I got to do this right. I got to figure it out. I have to make this wish right. And he starts, he keeps starting the wish and then saying, no, 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 that's not right. And he starts a couple of different ways. Like, I wish that, uh, that, Stevie was back. No, that's not right. I wish that things were back to normal. No, that's not right. Like he had to make sure that it was exactly right so that everything would go back to exactly what it was. So in the end, he comes up with, um, I wish I had never made my that first wish. There you go. And he goes back and oh. he wakes and he wakes up, he goes to bed and he wakes up back in his bed, back in his room that was normal, like his normal original room with skates, rollerblades everywhere and just like a guitar and like posters all on the wall. Like there's no sports trophies or anything. And he's like, holy fuck, I did it. I'm back, let's fucking go. And he goes and he runs to Stevie's room and Stevie's room is normal, like a kid room, but Stevie's not in it. And he's like, what the fuck? And he runs downstairs and his parents are normal and his dad's making what funny pancakes or whatever the fuck. And he's like excited about that, but he's like, where's Stevie? And his parents are just like, he's outside. What is, what? (laughs) Calm the fuck down, son. He's like, are you okay? (laughs) Nope, he's still in his pajamas. He runs outside in his pajamas and is like, where the fuck is Stevie? And he's like running around. He like goes out of the gate um, and- down a little ways and like notices stevie like at the neighbor's house like walking his bike walking alex's bike that he just fucked up mind you right of course um and he sees stevie and he immediately like picks him up and grabs him in a hug and stevie is like freaked the fuck out because he thinks alex is gonna kill him because his bike is all totaled and they when they went to bed last night he was upset as fuck at him so he's like jesus i didn't do it i didn't do it like it's okay Oh, but Alex grabs him in a big old bear hug and is super happy and it's raining so they're getting all wet and it's just right. like fucking hilarious and then his two best friends Lelaine and Brad or Abby and Brad come to the house to like pick him up to go to school and he asks uh Abby if she would like to go skating with him 
like just the two of them because he realized in all of this chaos and horribleness that she had had a crush on him the whole time and he was ignoring her to have his weird crush on the head cheerleader who sucked so finally he realizes that he likes her and he's like hey let's go on a date and she's like what really yes let's fucking go and then end of movie everything is happy because it's disney and it's beautiful and it was cute very and that was you wish from 2003 as told by a horrible drunk i love it i love the fact that we have revisionist history and that poor bff kid's name into brad (laughs) yeah i don't know what his name is brad maybe no that's not it bob (laughs) bobby (laughs) billy i don't know some shit Something with a B. I'm pretty sure it was with a B. I'll look it up right now. I don't actually know for sure. (laughs) (laughs) I literally watched this movie like, what? It's like three hours ago. I finished it four hours ago. I finished this movie four hours ago and I can't remember this dude's name. That's how little his character meant to me. (laughs) Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So that was You Wish. Um, It was interesting to say the least. Again, I had not seen this movie in years and years and years and years. So yeah, I barely remembered it. I only remembered it because of the people who are in it, not really because of the plot at all. But it is a very common trope, the like person sibling parent whoever makes you aggravated and then you wish they weren't there and then they aren't and you have to feel bad about it right and like you go come to realize that they are pretty awesome and you definitely want them back in your life again this happens in the labyrinth like this was the whole plot of the labyrinth literally literally Uh, her little brother who was like one got all the attention and she was super mad about it and pitched a fit and then right. the Goblin King, takes the Goblin King came and stole your little, little brother. And then you had to fucking go through a labyrinth to find him. Um, it's kind of similar to the plot of Big in that little kid makes a wish that he was bigger and then becomes bigger and lives a fun life and then misses everything about being small and realizes that all he wants to do is be small again. It is has a to very, figure out a way to become small again. It's a very common, like, the, like, I wish blank. And then you get your wish and your wish is not what you thought that yeah, it would be, yeah. basically. And then you have to come to grips with that. It's almost very much like, it's a wonderful life scenario of the, like, I want to kill myself. And it's like, okay, well, this is how the world would be if you were dead. It's not better. It's worse you know, the, the very big trope of the, be careful what you're wishing for in the heat of the moment, because that's not really what you actually want. Yeah. His name was James, not Brad. (laughs) So nowhere near, nothing with a B still common white guy name, I guess, but it was James, not Brad, whatever. The fact that I was drinking water when you found this day. <laughs> yeah. 
Ooh, okay. I'm oh, right. that's fun. So one of the football players, um, the like dumb football players was looked really familiar to me, but I couldn't place him, right? Because this was 2003 and he looked like a child. So I looked him up. The actor's name is Jay Ryan. And he played a character named, uh, where is this character? Charles in this movie. Um, Ooh, what a name. Yeah, whatever. It's just some dumb football player. But he ends up playing adult Ben in It Chapter 2. He's like the main character in It Chapter 2. One of the main characters. Adult Ben. Oh, 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 hold the fuck on. Okay, hold on. You're talking about- I'm talking about hot boy. Like he goes from fat kid to hot boy, Ben. Yeah, holy shit. Yeah, he, this guy. He oh was my God, what a show. I love that. Oh my God, I cannot believe. Yeah, so he was in he this was movie as just like a random background character. Look at what you can accomplish from decom to it. That's that's yeah. a fucking rags to riches story if I ever damn heard one. It really is. That's beautiful. That made me very happy inside my soul. The it movies are great. They are they really are. They're so good. Such good adaptions. Anyway, movies are great, I should say. Um so yeah. That's pretty much all I got about you wish. Um yeah. Do you have a seven word synopsis for either one? I am going to have to have one. Okay, you think <laughs> about it and I will tell you one. I have a couple for right. a house on Mango Street. Right. Okay. For a house on Mango Street, abusive Chicano male stereotype is heartbreaking reality. Yeah, that works very well. Sure. Yep just there it is it's a stereotype for a reason and i hope it's not a stereotype for much longer let's get rid of it let's be better and let's be real it's a stereotype in chicano culture but it was also a stereotype in lots of other cultures it just so happened that that during that time for a long time even in today people just won't talk about the differences of our cultures so like you know, it wasn't talked True. about the fact that these are the same types of yeah. things that are kind of across cultures. This whole like toxic masculinity sort of yep. going on. Agreed. Okay, and then my second one is uh, a Chicano American literature should be taught throughout USA. Hell yes. Boom. I would have loved to have read literally anything in fact i should be mad at you for taking my seven word synopsis because damn i wish i had come up with that (laughs) literally i wish i could go back and have been taught any of anything like this anything about anything about chicano culture there was there was literally nothing about hispanic heritage or culture like we got a tiny bit of it in grade school about yeah. around Cinco de Mayo where we talked about like right just what Cinco de Mayo was about and where we would have like dancers come in and dance um 
like for assemblies and stuff, but we didn't read any Chicano literature by Chicano authors telling the story of Chicano Americans, which was fucking insane to me, is is still insane to me. And even in high school, we didn't really get it. Even like we got like the tiniest, like one day mention of Cesar Chavez day. And that was it. And it was like, cool farm workers. And that was it. That that's all Mexicans are. That's our legacy. That was like our whole, that's that's the whole identity of all Mexican Americans is Cesar Chavez and dancing. And it was just like, looking back on it as an adult i'm incredibly disappointed in oh so awful in the education yeah. like the cultural education of the melting pot that is the united states and you states. think and yeah especially you're listening to us here this is california that's what we're saying so yeah. like we're progressive we're we're ahead of many of the states of our damn country in this regard and it's still disappointing it is still very far from the actual bar that should be you know what i'm saying yeah yeah absolutely um when i was little i remember even when i was in elementary school i um there was like a folklorico um little like dancing troupe yeah an assembly that came yeah well, I joined it. So after I saw the assembly, I was interested in it. So I joined the little folklorico dancing. And folklorico dancing is so fucking hard and so cool. So hard. I loved it when I was a kid, but I only did it for like one year. And I don't remember why. Like, I honest, I literally honestly don't remember why I like stopped doing it. And I'm thinking it potentially is because they had to cancel it. Like, I'm thinking it's because like not enough people were involved in it. Yeah. And like what they were trying to do with it was get it to become mainstream. Because of course, if all of, if it's only a troop for the, you know, the Latinx communities, then like, yeah, you would have the Latinx children involved in it. But I think the one that I was involved in was literally specifically trying to get it infiltrated kind of into the school system. Mm-hmm. And it was dropped, I'm pretty sure. And that's why yeah. like, I was not in it anymore. And I was, I'm so upset now knowing what I know kind of about like how this works, how that happened, because I loved it. I remember loving it. It's like a vivid part of when I was in elementary school yeah like florida is fucking cool it was so fun i remember even the dance that i the the song i can hear it in my head even today (laughs) um and there's lots of stuff about my childhood that i cannot remember and i remember that song i can hear it in my head that we danced to because i loved it so much and we had to drop it and i'm sure i i am positive that it was probably because no one else would would enroll in it and because of i'm so sure the culturalness of it so yeah. it just dropped which is just so fucking dumb yeah a couple um, of years ago i remember being insanely jealous because a bunch of my friends who are band directors update i majored in music so all of my friends are band directors um a bunch of my friends music programs involved teaching a mariachi class hell yeah which is fucking awesome hell yeah mariachi ensemble that's so fucking dope <laughs> that's i so mean fucking cool like, is so 
is such a cool art form. It's so beautiful. And I remember I being jealous, like, very fuck, dude, when I was in high school, where was the mariachi band? Because I would have been in it. Like, let's fucking go. That would have been so cool to be in. Jazz is good. Like, jazz should absolutely stay. Jazz is actually, honestly, in particular, very important in terms of um, it's a little bit different today, but like in but the jazz the jazz bands are generation, still old jazz. jazz yeah yeah older jazz in particular was very much like an african-american sort of thing oh and for like sure american sort of um heritage thing so it is absolutely essential should always remain because jazz is great but yeah where are where is the fucking mariachi you know uh bands in yeah. schools where i don't know how many of my friends come on I don't know how many of my friends are getting to keep their mariachi programs right now because of we're in a whole new world post COVID or during COVID, I should say. Um, So music education as a whole, it has had to change completely, but prior to COVID, a bunch of friends did have mariachi programs and I was super jealous. Like, fuck, I want to be in your mariachi program. Like, sign me. All right, you, you got a seven words. They can, they can bring you into as like a, a special day conductor or something like that. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Oh, I don't want to conduct. I just want to play the trumpet. <laughs> okay, I have to like actually do my seven words synopsis and stop like <laughs> ignoring it. Um, fuck. Okay. shit i'm trying to make it not the one that you said as your second one (laughs) and i'm having a hard time because it's just what i wanted to even say with it okay hold on sorry i can do this i can do this i can do this okay young women are more than their sexuality nice very nice Yep. I'm tired. I'm tired of listening. I'm tired of reading. And they were very important. They were very important for a long time and are still important today for sure. In terms of the exploring how when young women are abused, especially sexually, like trying to explore the nuances of those feelings and those emotions. That's very important. And I so understand that. But Jesus Christ. I'm so tired of reading, you know, stories that romanticize that experience of a young girl's life. I don't want to read stories that romanticize that. I want to read stories like the house on Mango Street where she gets raped and it's not romanticized. It is, she writes about it and it's awful. It is one of the worst things that's happened to her. And she's like, when she writes, it's heartbreaking. She's screaming out to her friend. Like you told me, you told me this, you told me that you told me all of these things about when you, you know, are with a man or you are with a boy that it's this and it's that, and it feels nice. And you lied, you lied, you lied, you lied. It did not feel like that. It felt like this and this and this. Yeah, I want to yeah. read more fucking stories like that or like speak stories that talk to you about, no, I don't give a shit about, oh, the fucking romanticized kind of ideas of the nuances of these feelings. Yes, those exist in the, the people who can write those are few and far between where they don't actually 
enter into the territory of romanticization. Because if that is where you enter, then we've passed the point of no return of whether or not this, this literature is helpful versus it is just, just dark and in a place that I just, I just, me personally cannot hit. I want to read stories of, yeah, I can, I can explore the very nuanced emotions of this shit happening to me, but the overwhelming, large, important aspect to take away from this is it's not fucking okay. Like yeah. it's not okay that I was a fucking child and I was fucking raped or was fucking sexually assaulted. Uh, yeah. You know, yeah, I am humans as they grow older, they become sexual. Yes. When you're an adult, sure, I can absolutely, absolutely read a story of a character who is an adult who is thinking about their experience of when they were a child and thinking about when that potentially happened to them and trying to contextualize it for themselves. But it is a very different situation from reading a story where the character is an adult thinking about that and how it impacts their relationships today at, at present at when they're an adult that is very different from a situation where I'm trying to tell a story where in the present tense, I'm a child and I'm being raped and I'm being sexually assaulted. And, oh, let's sort of try and quote unquote, explore the nuances of these feelings. Maybe let's romanticize it. Maybe let's feel things that are good. Like, bleh, bleh. no, stop. I don't no. fucking care about reading that. I just really fucking don't. And you know me, I've had the rant on this show already <laughs> on this show about the fact that dark fiction is very important. Dark fiction and dark literature and dark art are very important under no circumstances am I saying any type of literature or art should be censored. 1000% no, not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, let's not be holding these ones up as the like important iconic things let's not be holding these ones up as the important iconic representations of how to think about those things you know what i'm saying let's hold up the ones that do it in a better way they can exist they can absolutely exist and i'm never going to say that they should be censored and i'm never going to say that they should be burned or whatever but what i am saying is they shouldn't be classics. They shouldn't be things that are held up like, we'll get into it, unfortunately. Unfortunately, at some point, probably very, very far away from today, I will potentially, maybe, not even gonna commit to it, cover Lolita, but um, I'd much rather have the house on Mango Street or speak in place of Lolita. And that's just the end of that conversation. Yeah. Anyway, went on a large rant. <laughs> that's okay. All right. Seven word synopsis for You Wish. Now, I do have something I forgot to say. I forgot to check my notes and say this when I was talking about this movie. There is a point in the alternate reality world where his head cheerleader girlfriend gets mad at Alex for talking to Abby, for saying hello to Abby. 
And he's like, yeah. I just said hello to her, like chill. And she's like, fuck down, yeah. Well, she's a loser and you can't hang out with losers because that looks bad on your image, which ultimately looks bad on my image and makes me look not as cool and blah, 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 like some bullshit, right? She cheer, cheer spells out losers to him. And she says, L-O-S-S-E-R-S. What does that spell? And he like, lost for a second. <laughs> and like, doesn't say anything. And his best friend, what's his real name? James is like, uh, losers? And he's like, Thanks. He spelled fucking losers wrong. Please, please. It was hilarious. I'm sad I forgot to say that when it actually happened when I was talking about the movie, but yeah, it's a fucking mess. Amazing. Okay, so I only have one seven word synopsis for this movie, and it is Twitty and Miranda would make perfect couple. Aww. Because they would. Twitty from Even Stevens was dope. Fucking Miranda from Lizzie McGuire was dope. They both my favorite characters from those independent shows and them being together in this movie was perfect i'm sad that their characters in this movie were so different from their characters in the sh- in the other shows oh uh, yeah but their characters in the other shows would have made perfect perfect relationship goals like i don't about lizzie so mcguire side note about lizzie mcguire michaela bj's daughter yeah brother's daughter uh has fucking watched lizzie mcguire Liz McGuire is the best. It was she, as soon as Disney Plus came out, I watched I, at midnight. I watched Brink and then I followed it by Johnny Tsunami. And then very next day, I started Liz McGuire and watched the whole series from start to finish. The minute Deke, like the minute the Disney Channel Plus thing became a thing, she like started binging shit. And one of the first things that she did was Lizzie McGuire. And I was like, that was mine. That was when I was your age. Shut up. I'm so emotional right now. Yep. <laughs> okay. Do Lizzie McGuire's you- fire. I'm gonna keep saying it. If you have Lizzie not watched Lizzie McGuire, Lizzie McGuire, go fucking iconic. watch it. One of the most iconic. One of the most influential. Hands down. <sighs> okay. The fact that we are being cheated out of a Lizzie McGuire reboot continuation is bullshit. The fact that Disney wanted to make it for kids instead of for adults like the new iCarly is bullshit. Lizzie McGuire should be an adult. She should be experiencing adult situations and all of us adults who watched it when we were kids should get to experience them with her. I'm mad. If they're not going to make it for adults, here's the thing. Okay, Disney, you want to make it for kids? That's fine. That means Lizzie is the mom and we're looking at Lizzie's kids that's that's the answer to this that's the only answer that i will accept that is a kid's version of this i won't even accept that because it's trash because that's what they did with that's so raven when they did uh raven's home and nobody fucking watched that show and it got canceled after a a fucking season get rid of that shit stop showing the people as parents like we don't need to be parents and follow the kids story that's not what i want i want continuation adult lizzie mcguire is it getting into shenanigans show me how she works in the real world from being lizzie mcguire it's such bullshit otis wants a real an adult lizzie mcguire movie too oh i'm i'm not saying that adult content should not be made for lizzie mcguire because it absolutely should one thousand percent 
Yeah, Otis is all content. about Team Hillary Duff. The adult content, adult Hillary be Duff, one thousand percent. All I'm saying is, if your line is, "I have to make something that is also for kids," that's the line you clearly go down. Otherwise, yeah. the adult content needs to be made. I just needs feel like Disney is. I could go on a diatribe for hours, so I'm not going to do that. I'm going to say one simple statement. Disney will make adult content as long as it is Marvel or Star Wars. But we don't get any adult Disney content. What would a Lizzie McGuire or a That's a Raven where they're the parents and it's we're talking about the children too. Who's the audience for that? Kids, because it's fo- because it would focus on the kids. Jo- That's a Raven, that new That's a Raven focused on her kids and her kids got the power too. So they were both being like telepathic or whatever. What I'm saying is Maleficent is a especially in Cruella the fact that they're doing the villain origin stories primary example they know how to make adult disney content they do but they won't no excuse yeah exactly i i want i still want to riot cuz i want fucking adult lizzie mcguire like full on like she's living her best sexual life She's a business professional as an adult doing her own goddamn thing. We're not worried about kids. She's living her life and dealing with horrible sexism and horrible shit in her regular life. How is that little cartoon Lizzie McGuire dealing with horrible sexism in her office? How is it dealing with Gordo? Like adult Gordo that you now have feelings for, like that you clearly have feelings for because that's how the movie ended. Like what the fuck happened with that? Just Okay, I have to stop. I have to stop. Okay. I need She's seven blushed. words. She's getting I need blushed. seven words about your wish. Upset, I will go on a tirade. I'm going to leave you before I do my seven word synopsis with this perfect thought, even Stevens. So, okay, seven word synopsis for you wish. Be careful what you wish for, idiot. Accurate. That's accurate. I'm going to say, just saying, you got to think your in the moment emotions are not the emotions that you actually feel when you are at a baseline. Yeah. I don't think adult even Stevens would work. You don't think adult even Stevens would work. You don't want to see the fucking sibling. Stop. I did not say I don't want to see it. I said I don't <laughs> think it would work. Shia LaBeouf has fair, fair. Shia so is far very difficult past even Stevens. Like sure. the goofball, like I'm like shooting nacho cheese out of my nose, kid that he was on even Stevens. I think he'd love returning to that. Come on. I don't. He's so serious now. He's trying to be take him like he's so good and he like I think he's beyond it I think if they did an adult even Stevens it would be like the personalities would be swapped and 
and Shia LaBeouf would now be just like Rin. And yes. he'd be like the OCD, like, no, everything has to be perfect. He'd be like the big shot, like, I don't know, he's a lawyer or some shit, just like very in yeah, the zone about yeah, his yeah. life. And Ren would be like the kooky soccer the mom. Mother. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yes. It'd have to completely flip because Shia LaBeouf is not that kid anymore. And he's, I think he's done being that, but, that but guy. But there we go. We just pitched it. Disney, you're listening, obviously, to this <laughs> podcast. Get in contact. We just made you a goddamn blockbuster. I'm just saying, you're welcome. Oh, man. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you're right. Okay. All right. So, sorry, that was a huge tangent. I could talk forever about yes. Disney, and I'm sure. What did I you will. sign up for? If you're listening to this, you already know our tangents are often um, very long and very about Disney. Yep, <laughs> Usually. This is my podcast is what I'm going to talk about. Okay, so first off, we would like to thank our artist, Susan Dorda, for our incredible cover art. Uh, You can check out her work at susandorda.com, S-U-S-A-N-D-O-R-T-A.com. If you have any questions, comments, concerns, or suggestions for things we should watch or read next, you can hit us up on Twitter at AllentownPod. You can email us at AllentownPresents at gmail.com, or you can find us on Facebook at AllentownPresents. Yeah, we'd love to hear from you um, with your opinions, garbage or not, I don't care. Like, hit us up, let us know. Don't agree with me? That's fine. Let's talk about it. Please yell at me. Please yell at me all day about my shit opinions about Lizzie McGuire. That is what I'm here for. Um, The best way that you can support us 1000% is if you, in any of the uh, whatever platform that you listen to your podcasts on, you like slash subscribe slash follow slash leave a rating and review the absolute best way to support us if you enjoy this podcast it lets all those computer algorithms know this is a podcast that people like to listen to and it promotes us so that it gets spread around and we continue to uh be bloated to the ears of people who are interested in listening yeah so thank you so much for listening uh of course this has been real lit and join us again soon for another episode where we cover some more classic literature and just all right movies (laughs) (laughs) just all right movies they're just okay all right bye bye